With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. All right, you got economic questions? This is one of the guys with the answers, or he claims to have them anyway. We're going to test that today because I got a couple of theories I'm going to throw at him. Good friend of the program. He is a contributor at Ordinary Dash Times Magazine. He is an economist. He works for one of them four-letter government offices, which is because, like golf, all the other four-letter words were taken. Uh, he does know what he's talking about, though. We love having him on the program. He's a very good friend of ours. Jericho Hill, sir, how are you on this fine day? I'm doing pretty good. It's a beautiful day up here in D.C. Looking forward to getting into the hot tub in a little bit. It is today, but y'all were having NOAA-level rainstorm there a little earlier. How'd that go? Uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of social media uh, in Alexandria about how uh, we apparently got four inches of rain dumped overnight. And for the first time ever, our sewers did not back up. It did not flood. Um, apparently, our capital improvement projects that we've had actually have worked. So... People are really happy around Alexandria the last couple of days. Infrastructure, drink. Uh, uh, yeah, it's that's not a Hurricane Matthew down around North Carolina where uh, we got 21 inches of rain in something like three and a half hours or some ungodly biblical I mean, nonsense. That, where that's going to flood no matter down. what. That's going to flood no matter what. Well, it was really, really funny was we had another hurricane two years later and one of the bridges downtown had opened up a week before from being rebuilt from Matthew. That's how that goes. Anyway. Let's talk economics. That's enough about the weather. Um, I want to tee you up on this because I here's the problem with economics. We talk big words and nomenclature and theory and dead English guys and all this stuff with economics. And it kind of turns people off and their eyes roll in the back of their head and they never get to the information they ever need about economics. So here's something practical for you, though. A lot of what's going on and we're going to talk about how weird the economic numbers are. How much of this is because, and we are in a post-COVID era, so let's start there. Did economics and our government and especially our populace, did we just completely underestimate how much of a service economy we have now? And it took COVID for people to really realize it. And we're still seeing the ripple effects of it because we haven't adjusted that viewpoint. Is that fair to say? Uh if you're talking about, did policymakers recognize the sort of impacts that the so that the, what we call the service sector um, has on the economy and sort of the links in the chains between the service sector and other, you know, sectors of the economy, financial, housing, uh, government, military, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think that you know those, these are the things that you sort of see every day, but if nothing sort of stands out to you, it's not very tangible, so you kind of don't notice it. Right. Um, and that's true based on, you know, just what we do when we go to the grocery store every day um, versus, you know, someone that's looking at data um, on a spreadsheet, you know, doing econ forecasting. If we don't notice something like, yeah, it, it's not going if it doesn't pique our interest, then we're, we're, we're not going to sort of notice those little finer details. Only when something is, is, is comes to the forefront, which is what we have here with COVID, you know, basically, you know, shocking the system. Um, and then also, you know, let's, let's also keep in mind that at the, when COVID happened, um, I think you can argue that, you know, one, um, the white collar work uh, fundamentally has changed for a significant portion of, of white collar workers now working from home, uh, a much larger extent. 
Um, it's, 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 it's changed preferences for in office versus home. It's changed preferences for commuting. You know, a whole lot of folks got to not commute for two years, you know. Um, and then, of course, that all translates down to the service sector where they're, you know, directly impacted by the fact that, hey, downtowns have been shut down for, well, not shut down, but have been uh, lacking business activity for, for a while. And, and that service sector has had to sort of figure out what the heck they're doing and how they're going to get people and how they're going to continue on. Yeah, because the problem with the service sector is our politicians love to talk about uh, manufacturing and industry. We're going to bring back the manufacturing job. You know, every politician ever nope. says that. Uh, Biden nope. says it every three weeks, which, yeah, I, you know, I don't even blame him because he said it for 50 years. It's just part of his stick at this point. I'm not even blaming him. Every politician says it. <laughs> but what COVID really showed was, and it's a broad term because we think service workers were thinking, you know, fast food workers, grocery yeah. workers, customer mm-hmm. service, but really that includes things like insurance, finance. Most of banking now is actually service sector, believe it or not, even though- uh, Any package being delivered to your house. The transportation industry has mm-hmm. gone towards the service industry, especially with um, what they call last mile transport. And I don't want to make yep. the rolls in the back of their head, but that is a paradigm shift in how business is done is last mm-hmm. mile transportation. Yeah, that's this what I was co- referencing. Yep. But this country is a service economy now. And we, how do we, it's get been, heads it's around? been a service economy for, for decades, but how do we get people's heads around that? Because I, I really think we talk on the show all the time is part of the problem of getting through the noises. You got to get the nomenclature, right? Make sure everybody's using the same terminology and same definitions. I think a big part of this is, and I'm guilty of it too. I, and I don't even think it's anybody's fault. I think it's just kind of how it happened. How do we change this to get people to talk about this is a service country economy now? I think some estimates, and it's it varies because of the number. They're talking 60, 70% of our economy could fall into this definition. That should change our politics. It should change our policy, and it should change how we talk about it online and amongst our peers, shouldn't it? It should, but let's let's go back to think about you know the US as as a big ship in the ocean, right? And it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to have that ship change its course just a little bit, right? So we have to think about what the U.S. was back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and we can go through the 80s if we want, to what we are today. And you're essentially asking for people who grew up when the U.S. was still a manufacturing economy to now shift their worldview that they grew up with and know that it's a service sector. That takes generations. You know, and I, I like and also think about right in those years that I referenced, um, labor unions, particularly in the manufacturing sector, were incredibly powerful, right? And they they still have some of that uh, messaging power today. But you know, there's not really a corollary for for service set for a lot of the service sector workers. You know, particularly the service sectors that we really think about. Um, so I, I think you you've got sort of that coordination and messaging you know challenge as well that maybe didn't exist when we were fairly easy to wrap your head around manufacturing issues. I got a just personal note here, and I, but I think it illustrates it. I got a picture from my mom here a couple of weeks ago of my dad when he was, I think, 19 or 20 years old. And he's wearing this cutoff army fatigue shirt because his summer job that year, he was working at Youngstown Sheet and Tube and he was doing the hot work. They run around on the furnaces. The reason he was wearing the cutoff shirts because you wear the big leather sleeves and leather stockings to work around the furnaces. That was his summer job. Right. Because he had ends with the union and new people and you know how those sorts of things. That company doesn't even exist anymore. 
those kind of jobs for 19, 20 year olds without a college education don't exist anymore. That's one lifetime ago. And, and our family was there for black Monday where they pretty much wiped out, you know, Youngstown in one fell swoop. That wasn't, I mean, it sounds like, you know, 50, 60 years ago is a long time ago, but it really wasn't in economic terms. This thing went fast. And I think the last 10 or 15 years with the way the internet and social media, I think we're seeing another one of those moments now where everything's changing faster than we really, really realize it is. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I think we're at a, one of those technological inflection points. Um, I mean, we can go back to the, the simplest corollary is, you know, what happened to the, to the work environments when we actually got computing it, you know, uh, and that radically changed what people could do um, in the office and what kinds of analyses could be done. It radically changed what we do in economics because now we could actually model things uh, without going to a massive mainframe computer that took up three stories in a building. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're transitioning. We've got a, we've got a, a generation, uh, the, the millennials that have now gone through three economic crises versus the Gen Xers that really went through maybe one right under under carter and early reagan you know that was kind of the the most tangible one um you know and then you've got the the gen zers coming in and they're they're starting their their um their journey in the, in the labor market coming out of a of a recession you know and, and where things are, are are a little bit uh weird now again it's weird like they're they're dealing with you know insecurity they're, they're like, they can't afford, a, they don't think they're ever going to be able to afford a home or at least any home that they, they would want. Um, but at the same time, unemployment is at levels that, you know, economists, you know, five years ago would say are, are, are well below what we would expect a normal functioning economy to be at, um, at least for the U.S., you know. But so we have this very weird Jekyll and Hyde economy right now, especially if we compare it to the rest of the world. It's just really fascinating. Like we think about the choice architecture that we had in the last couple of years, how, how we look very different than Europe right now, which is the best sort of uh, comparison I can, I can use. And that's why I bring up the Youngstown thing and the steel thing again. And I don't want to harp on the point, but I think it's important for people to understand. And again, it's personal because my family was involved. So this is, you know, part of our, part of the lore of my family is, you know, my father got offered those jobs, turned it down, went to West Virginia to be a teacher. And he has a nice retirement while most of those folks struggled for years and years and years because they left the steel mills to go work for GM and Alliance because they thought that'd be safer. And well, you see how that worked out. Mm -hmm. But the reason I bring that up is the steel industry in places like Youngstown and Bethlehem Steel, and you can go to Lehigh Valley or wherever else you want to talk about, they all died in the 70s and 80s. But it wasn't the 70s and 80s that killed them. It was the 50s and 60s because they never mm -hmm. upgraded what they were doing. They never, they never advanced. They never revolt. And then when we re rebuilt Europe and Japan post-World War II, they had all the new stuff and they had all the new technology and we fell behind. The reason I bring this up is I wonder if the reason some of this doesn't make sense is there's other parts of the world that might be evolving a little bit faster on some of this stuff than we realize. And maybe it won't be as dramatic as that, but is there a danger of this that we're not adapting and moving forward as fast as we probably should have as a world leader, like we did with steel where they were running thirties and forties furnaces in the seventies. And that just ain't going to work. I think that we've still done a pretty good job of capturing sort of the, the, the economic dy dynamicism of entrepreneurs and, and business starters who still prefer to come to the U.S. to create those businesses um, over Europe, over Japan, um, you know, 
So I, I think that we still have that infrastructure in place. I, I do think, however, the emerging choice seems to be uh, a European choice of accepting um, a little bit less of economic growth, but having a much better balance of life, um, I would say, um, versus you know sort of what we've had in the US, which has been sort of a hyper-focus on product, profits and productivity at the expense of people working 60-hour weeks. So what's, what is sustainable, right? Where, where are we going with choices, especially as the developed world is getting richer and richer? Well, the problem there is, and I'll just point it out, if I'm working a 60-hour week in management and you're working a 60-hour week as an hourly employee and you're box kicking and I'm at a computer, those on paper and in economic and on the spreadsheet, those look like the same thing. Those are not the same thing, though, uh, are no, they? No, 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 they're not. And they, it's really hard. You, just take me behind the scenes, but use small words so even I can understand it, though. When you're on the academic side, when you're analyzing this sort of thing, how do you get some kind of a variable in there to account for that? Because on paper, it's the same thing, but those are two very different things. And yet that's exactly what you as an economist need to explain both to policymakers and to the public, though, isn't it? Well, OK, so let's break this down a little bit more. So we look at, you know, what is what? how how many hours per week are people working and we've seen in the developed world europe and the us that the number of hours a typical worker is working has been declining a um, little bit more in europe than, than here um you know especially compared to you know several decades ago um but you know we sort of i think uh, at least on a white collar perspective uh saw that a lot of our work time which i use the air quotes therefore um, was spent in fairly unproductive uh, ways. Uh, it seems that the, 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 the meetings that we used to have uh, now when we get to this Zoom environment uh, have been a little bit less and people have uh, accepted that maybe the traditional nine to five in a lot of places is not necessarily the thing that, that actually works best for folks. And we've seen some flexibilities there. I, I think the biggest challenge for the US economy compared to Europe um, is Europe's already sort of had this sort of lifestyle-focused uh, economy for a little bit. They've been better about work-life balance and, and benefits, whatnot. Look, we know some countries, we laugh at it. They take a little you know, siesta in the middle of the day or they have a wine hour at one o'clock. They're generally happier than we are here in the U.S. Um, but, you know, we, we, we in the U.S. have had this essentially uh, what, I, what I think a lot of us have called a case-shaped uh, economy forming Forming. And I think COVID really exacerbated that. What I mean is, um, and I, I've used this analogy a couple of times, we've got our service sector workers who are having to show up into the office, still having to commute, um, still working, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And then you've got the white collar workers, like myself is in there, that are, that are you know, continuing to work their, their normal hours, but doing so at home without commuting, um, and much more, you know, having much more pleasant circumstances to do it. And for, you know, up until COVID, the, the, the wage gains were, were almost exclusively happening amongst that white collar upper income set. COVID has flipped that switch a little bit. We are seeing wage gains um, at the bottom of, of income earners, uh, far, outpa far outpacing those of the highest, of the, in the, in the, of the highest earning uh, workers and actually, uh, many estimates suggest that even with inflation being a little bit ridiculous at this point, um, the income gains for low-income workers has outpaced inflation in the U.S., which yeah, is 
Interesting. But you've said life balance three times now. So we're going to come in and hone on that right after we take a break. Our friend Jericho Hill, great economist, great friend, explaining it so even I can understand it. Doing a little economics and plain speak today with our buddy. More with him on Hertel right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking economics, but we're trying to kind of keep it on a lowest level, one, so I can keep up with him because he's got all them fancy letters after his name as an economist, our buddy Jericho Hill, joining us. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, because you keep talking about life balance and life and work balance and cost of living is the number one thing in America. And we've been talking to our British friends. They just deposed their prime minister, one, because he was lying about stuff. But two, they're having a cost of living crisis, which hard to put up with shenanigans when you have a cost of living credit cost of living is going to be the the top issue in our election this year also i believe but i found something interesting this morning i was in line at bojangles for the folks that aren't fortunate enough to know that's a fast food place that does biscuits and chicken and things like that wonderful organization great restaurant but they had a sign sitting right beside the drive-thru this morning i put it on my twitter feed i'll link to it in the show notes and it was to get people to hire them. You've seen these signs all over the place, but I want to talk about the order that these things are on the signs because this is a major company. They means test these things. They don't put them out accidentally, right? This is a produced sign. I'm going to read them in order. Number one, earn extra pay, $250 every time you refer an employee that stays for 90 days. And that's got an exclamation point after it. So I stop you there just to say, why are they leading with that? Because $250 is the biggest number that they have, right? No. And, yeah. you know, you know, you know, 250 versus, you know, 15 an hour, like obviously 15 hours bigger with, with a lot of hours, but you know, 250 boom, right there, quick money, quick hit Yeah, Get your friends to come work there. Boom. And if you're making 14, $15 an hour, not an insignificant amount of money either. No, it is not. Uh, number two would be a big point for me. Delicious free meals. I'm a hey, free food. I'm in, I, I, I'll work like a dog for you for free food. Hey, yeah, you're right. Free meals. And guess what? Guess what's gotten expensive recently? Food. Bojangles fries. But that's why I got the seasoning at the house. But that's neither here nor there. You can get it on Amazon.com, folks. But this is where it gets really interesting. Okay. I'm just going to go through these. You stop me when you want to talk about it. Next item. Work the schedule best for you. Mm-hmm. Free so time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there because there is, there's some interesting um, other sort of alternative work schedules that have come out. Uh, you mentioned the Lehigh Valley area and some of those manufacturing areas that are still there. Um, th- I, I've, I've seen some, some programs uh, and some studies done of some of these manufacturing plants now offering a nine o'clock to two o'clock shift schedule. Guess who that's for named it? I mean, that is for mama. Yeah, because, and we talked about this on the show before, 
the the sector of the working the hourly workers that just got absolutely creamed was the 35 hours and under because when school is out they cannot work because those were jobs when kids are out of school or once the kids get home from school they'd go pick up some hours they got absolutely decimated and that really hurt a lot of these service sector companies because those are if you run a restaurant if you run a customer facing service business those are your float workers and peak hour workers. And that's why you see a lot of these problems with these types of businesses, isn't it? And so, and so, yeah. And, and of course, right now, they're also struggling to get people into the door. Um, the GOP was out there on Twitter yesterday saying that 50% of small businesses are struggling to hire folks. And I'm going, yes, your unemployment rate is less than 4% again. Um, we still have a little bit of folks that, that we would expect to come back. Our labor force rotation rate is about a percentage or two point lower than it was um, in like 2018, 2019, I believe. Uh, so a little bit of slack there, but not a whole lot. But the, the point is, you know, they're saying all these small businesses are struggling to hire people. Yes, it, it's, a, it's a labor market. It's, it's, a, it's a worker's market right now. If you're not offering and incentivizing these folks to come work for your company, some other company will, and Bojangles is, is, is reaching out to that. So they're saying, we're going to give you flexible schedules. So if you are a working mom and you want to do a nine to two, seven days a week, you can. Like they are going to find ways to make that work because that's that beats that means that that worker doesn't go to KFC down the road. Now this next one blew me away, and I think this is a this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's not a big deal that they're offering it because companies are offering. I think it's a big deal that they're offering it because that means people have been demanding it. Mm-hmm. This is right on the side. This is the fourth thing from the top other than free food. Which Again, really all this of... tells you is that workers have some bargaining yeah. strength right now. But listen to this one, because this if, if it was a newspaper, this would be above the fold. They used to say, you know, the part laying mm-hmm. there that you want them to see free telemedicine and telemental health. Mm-hmm. That, that that's a you want to talk about culture shifts and economics and then hiring. There's your one right there. I mean, think about, you know, one technology got to the point where it's very easy to do telemedicine. It's very easy to have. Um, and these are often staffed by, by uh, nurse practitioners, um, at least as a, as a first pass. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have this with my, with my health insurance company. You know, I can do tele, telemedicine visits. Uh, instead of wasting an hour of commuting, I can do a 15-minute meeting. Um, and they for most things, they can diagnose you, you know, through that up, you got a cold. Okay, we'll put in the cold prescription to the pharmacy. When you get off your work shift or your kid comes home, you can come over to the pharmacy and pick it up and, you know, whatnot. Technology makes it super easy. People are able to now, like, think about 10 years ago, we couldn't do this because we didn't have these smartphones that literally everybody has, no matter what your income level is. Everybody's got a smartphone, which has video capability. So, so now we have this accessibility. So they're saying, look, we're going to, Engage a subscription service. That's what they do. There's companies out there that do, you know, have primary care and nurse practitioners, you know, ready to, to talk to folks. CBS has this with minute clinics. If you walk in, it's the same business concept. Um, and, you know, they can, they can provide that because the cost is actually fairly low if you do it for a big pool of employees. Um, but it is a benefit that means that they don't have to think about it. They don't have to think about how do I get to the doctor's office when I don't have a car and I rely on the bus and the bus is late. I don't, you know, what if my kid's home sick and I, I still need to go and, 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 and have, you know, my, a regular checkup. I, I'm feeling stressed and anxious and I want to do some, some, some counseling, some, some, some tele, you know, mental health stuff. Um, you know, again, like how do I fill that around my schedule? Well, guess what? 
right? These sorts of, of online sort of virtual environments are now allowing people to do that. It's a, it is, it, it's an easy benefit, I think, for a, for a big company to, to, to do. Um, I think it's fairly low cost, but it, it signifies that, hey, we're willing to put this forward, you know, forward as a benefit, and we're going to have that as a subscription that you don't have to worry about. And I think, again, like, if KFC is not offering that, guess who's going to walk in the door? Right? You're making their life easier. And somebody that's been a manager, because um, I was doing that before I, you know. You and I both. You, know, you and I for, both. <laughs> but you'll, under, you'll understand what I'm talking about here. I think major companies have figured this out that a lot of the really hard, nasty stuff that managers have to do, I'm talking about the stuff that makes you want to quit and walk out the door right now today. I think a lot of these companies, I need to write about this. A lot of these companies have figured out that they've been having their managers do a lot of stuff that mental health ought to have been doing, not their managers. Because, and you've been in that, you know, they want to talk about their, their something went wrong at home. Uh, something went wrong with the, the significant other. Kids sick. Kids not behaving well. I've got a problem with so-and-so I'm depressed today. I'm whatever. That's a lot of your managing time in the office. If you got folks that have, you know, telemental health where they have a counselor, look, I tell you, I've been taking telemental health for two and a half years since COVID shut down the VA's mental health and they've, they've brought it back some, I've got one tomorrow with my, my, my psychiatrist, you know, to dial in my meds. I'll have a 15 minute phone call with him to dial it in. instead of spending two hours driving up there. I think these companies have figured out not only is it good business, not only is it ethically and morally good, it's good for business because now you can give these folks a, you know, 30 minutes on clock telehealth, mental health, and you're taking pressure off your managers and you're getting a happier, better employee. Not just, not just pressure off managers. I do agree with you that there's, there's definitely some of that. I will say that, you know, I'm not sure this is true for every federal agency, but my federal agency has an employee assistance program. Um, And yeah, I can do it virtually. I can do it in person, but I can have, you know, X number of counseling appointments in a given year. I have used that in the past, um, you know, and it came in quite helpful. Now, what I will say is, you know, the company is also getting a benefit. If they have, if they're able to improve their workers' physical and mental health, those are workers that stick around a little bit longer. Um, service sector, you know, one of the big challenges is the uh, hiring and retention of employees. Right. There are costs associated with having to, you know, reach out, post jobs, interview and keep employees on the books. You know, so to the extent that you're able to have your employee reduce your employee turnover by a significant margin, that improves your profitability and survivability of a business. It has a very nice side effect that your employees are happier, healthier and, and downright better people. And yes, your managers do a little bit less of counseling. Yeah. Now the next one, um, a lot of people would blow this off and think it's just pro forma, but it's a big deal if you're an hourly employee. Weekly pay. Um, you know, we we both work on a different. <laughs> what's the famous intro to leverage? Like we work on an alternate uh, fiduciary arrangement. Uh, we we have a little different lifestyles now, but we've been those worker hourly employees. We've done that kind of work. That's a big deal to people that are just trying to get by weekly pay, isn't it? it is As a, an economist, it, that's an indicator too, isn't it? It is a much bigger deal than I think maybe even you appreciate. There is a lot of research out there, Andrew, that shows in terms of behavioral finance and behavioral econ that the closer you make when someone gets their paycheck and when they have their expenses hit, right? And you know expenses hit on the first, the fifth, or the 15th of the month. That's the typical due dates. 
the closer that you manage, you have to align the, the income that they're getting to their expenses, the better off the financial stability of that employee and their household is going to be. Irrespective of them earning more money, the same amount of money, but the closer you time it, the better off that household is going to be. Very simple explanation. Um, and this comes from a buddy of mine that uh, was a Marine and talked about him trying to figure out, this is going over to Afghanistan, the C-130, you know, oh, do I have enough in the account to cover the mortgage for the next two months, you know, or, or these other expenses? You, 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 you reduce the, the mental accounting that folks have to do, the mental checkbook that they have. Um, to ensure that they have cash flow to, to meet that, you know, like how much do I really have to save, you know, to make sure I can pay my next bill. Um, you know, that that's important. That is, that is mental energy that is now not going to be taken up by having to worry about that. And instead it can do something else. The last company I worked for, even though I was on the management level, I was paid weekly just because the pay structure of the company, hourly management, unless you were at the executive level, we all got paid weekly. That's how the whole company was set up, which was actually kind of cool because you could talk to your guys and commiserate like, hey, I'm getting paid every Friday just like you. Let's just get through. You know, you could spend it a little bit. Um, and frankly, about half of them made more money than I did. But my top four or five guys made almost double what I made. But you could spend it and be like, hey, we're all just trying to get to Friday and get our paycheck, that kind of thing. But I, I think a lot of folks that don't know just blow past that one and wonder, well, why is that so high up the list? That's why. And I again, think you did a I, great I, job explaining it. Again, I, mean, I could point to a number of studies. I'm happy to do that in the post later on in Ordinary Times. But yeah, there's, there, there, are, there are often very few one weird trick to solve things. And better timing income to expenses is literally one of those simple little one weird tricks that actually works. And doesn't cost anybody really anything. <laughs> yeah it's just, it's just rearranging your pay schedules a little bit and since most checks are electronic you know i mean it's not like there's a paper being cut anymore yeah any company of marginal I, you know what even even small businesses now everybody's direct deposit because of the there's also uh benefits to doing that on the company side of it the rest of this list is um career advancement and then the hourly pay for team members and shift managers i think there's a little psychology here involved we've been talking about the the, the economics out of this like you said, they opened up with the $2,250 bonus up front. Then they talk about weekly pay, then career advancement. That's how people think about it. Short-term first, long-term second. Uh -huh. I find this little sign, very interesting way to talk about practical economics. We opened up talking about how economics gets too big, wordy-wordy, and too many you know charts and graphs and too much math, and you know I don't do math. This is the practical level of economics that I think folks – they can get their head around, but at the same time, we also tend to ignore it the most, don't we? Mm -hmm. I mean, we as economists do often uh, ignore this, but although we're getting better at it when we're considering sort of non-monetary benefits that folks are, 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 are realizing when they go to work. Um, yeah, and I, again, like I do think, you know, this is, this is the corollary to the white collar uh, work now. Um, are you going to force us to come back to the office or are we going to be able to, to be home-based a bit more? Um, and I will tell you, uh, even, you know, within the federal government, we, we have a, uh, 
there's a definitely a, a difference in agencies in terms of what their telework positions are going to be post all pandemic, but we're seeing those plans sort of get finished and whatnot. And you have uh, agencies running from full-time telework to everybody in the office four days a week. Um, it's very telling where the good employees are going from those agencies that are requiring them to be in the office quite a bit. Um, it, it, it seems to me that there is a, a shift afoot of, of folks leaving agencies that are not offering that telework benefit. Yeah, and it's easy on something like the federal level where everybody's slotted and everybody, you know exactly what they're making, and exactly what their benefits are. So if they start moving around, it's going to be obvious why pretty, pretty fast because you've got a pretty good control. Yeah, and, and for folks that may not know, no, you cannot, as, as someone in this world, be home-based and be collecting a D.C. locality pay, which is which is much higher than, say, Omaha, Nebraska, and then live in Omaha, Nebraska and book the difference. No, that there are things that are in place in every contract that pretty much make that uh, – either highly impossible or just flat impossible. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's not the West happen. Virginia rule in DC because everybody started moving across the border right there and they're still t- driving to the train station and riding in so, and getting a split. So, so, you know, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you still have to be able to get into your home office and whatnot on, on a, on a fairly quick turnaround, um, which you, you couldn't really do except it would be prohibitively expensive if, if you did, if you lived anywhere else. But, you know, I think that's worth pointing out that I think that we're going to continue to see that, you know, we we've seen, you know, other businesses, um, you know, say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to go back to what we were doing and, and they've had to sort of change that. I mean, heck, even at my own agency, I I've seen the discussions, like even in management, you know, the, it starts off managers will be in the office this many days a week. And then, a couple of weeks later, oh, it's been reduced a little bit. Oh, it's been reduced. I mean, people respond to incentives. That's economics. Everything yeah. else is details, my friend. All you need to know is figure out what the incentive structure is. That, that's all you, That's all the economics you need to know. You get yourself another PhD there if you figured out all the VPNs people are coming up with to try <laughs> to get that travel in person. Anyway, uh, just, just a minute or two left here, though, but I have to ask sure. you the question. Everybody's talking about inflation, cost of living, things like that. We're starting to hear rumblings from people who generally know what they're talking about, though, that a lot of people thought recession was inevitable. A lot of people talking now, they think it may not be as inevitable. We may have avoided the worst of it. There may be inflation may be peaking. Prices might be peaking. Do you buy that talk? I know you don't like to predict things, but there's some Uh, people that know what they're talking about that think the recession thing might not be as big a monster as it was. Not that we're out of the woods yet. But it's maybe backed off a little bit. Is so, that true? so, so I would say it like this: um, We are seeing some positive signs that inflation uh, has peaked or is peaking. Uh, home price growth uh, and should should decelerate with the Fed jacking up, you know, the Fed funds rate, which then impacts the mortgage rates. And we've seen mortgage rates go from three percent to five to six percent. So that will slow things down a good bit. That will reduce the housing and shelter inflation that that's been driving a bit of that. Uh, we're seeing uh, oil has come down a good bit. Uh, and I will say, just as I said that Biden probably gets got too much blame when oil went up, he's going to get too much credit when oil comes down. Uh, that's just the vagaries of the world economy, you know. But but that that's a positive sign that we're seeing. Um, so yes, I, I I am optimistic that the worst of the inflation spike is over. I think this is more like a wave though that comes over uh, the beach and then it takes a while for everything to drain back into the ocean. Um, uh, sort of where I am right now, I think maybe we've peaked, but I don't think it's going to, I think it's going to stick with us a little bit longer than we wanted at some elevated levels. We're going to have some flooding for a couple of days, so to speak. Now, um, 
you know, and then, you know, we also looked at, you know, hey, employment's doing great. As I said, like, I, I wanted to start this with Andrew uh, to say, you know, we have a very weird economy. We have high inflation. We have incredibly low unemployment. We have wage growth that's better than most European, actually pretty much all European countries at this point. Um, and so this is one of those weird things, you know, um, could the Fed have possibly engineered a soft landing? Yeah, it's possible. I think that it's it's probably best to think about what might happen. You know, I might think of this as more like a 2001 recession versus like a 2008, right? 2008 was, was pretty bad and lasted for years, impacted people. 2001, we did have a mini recession and then things just kept on going. And maybe we're looking at something more similar to that. that that's where I am right now. That, that's sort of my thinking. Um, I, I, I really don't want for, to, to fall into the trap of, you know, the classic define a recession only using one metric and, and that's a recession. Um, I think we'll see a slowdown. I, I think that, you know, uh, we will see parts of the economy more impacted than others, but could we possibly be avoiding the worst of the worst? Yeah, I, I think we are. I think we're going to thread that particular needle, but I, I don't predict, I don't want to predict that there's not going to be some pain. Um, yeah, good stuff as always. Our good friend Jericho Hill. Let folks know where they can follow you on social media and your writing until we get you back, which is going to be soon because it's going to be a whole summer of this economic news, I'm afraid, my friend. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, now that I'm done with all my other stuff down south, I'll be, uh, be uh, more available. You can find me on Twitter at MotoEconomist. Uh, you can find me at Ordinary Times. Same darn name, MotoEconomist. That's where you'll find me at. He does great work. We're going to get him back writing at Ordinary Times now that his schedule is going to settle down a little bit. And we will definitely keep having him in the heavy rotation because you do good work. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate you. All right. No problem, sir. Bye-bye. Yes. back to her tell okay she's one of our favorites we talk history with her we talk a little bit of political history u.s history all kinds of fun stuff she's also english as you'll find out as soon as she starts talking sarah stook back on the program talking first ladies today how are you ma'am i'm good thank you for having me on again oh we love having you welcome back okay so you're you did this whole series on first ladies that i absolutely love elections-daily.com we've linked to it you need to read all the pieces of this multi-part series but this is the modern age, kind of the last two pieces of this. Let, let's just go to the part that's really important here, because the modern age of the first lady changed when we got television. And it's a real clear defining line. And, and you mentioned it a little bit in your pieces. I don't think anybody in America knew what Mimi Eisenhower looked like. Everybody to this day knows what Jackie Kennedy looked like. That really is the dividing line between the modern first lady, isn't it? That's, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. You know, Frances Cleveland in the late 19th century, her image was widely reproduced because she was young and pretty. Everybody knew what she looked like, but then you actually saw them properly through television. You saw them moving and talking, albeit in black and white, but, you know, still prominent to prominent and that yeah that's true that's when you started really seeing the first lady seeing the first family seeing the politicians and it wasn't accidental the kennedys were very savvy um the political machinations everybody knows the the background with joe we won't get into all that but we know how politically savvy and media savvy they were in a medium that was everybody was trying to figure it out at the same time we know about kennedy and the debates how they mastered that 
but the Jackie Kennedy stuff did not happen accidentally. That was part of the package deal, wasn't it? It was kind of like a a politically arranged marriage in medieval Europe. You look for the perfect candidate, the perfect wife. And, you know, Kennedy was in his mid-30s. He wasn't married. There were rumours he was gay in the media, which would obviously put a massive kibosh on his campaign. And even back then, politicians, they believed that you needed to be a family man. You could cheat on your wives, fine, but you needed to be a family man. And to Jackie, who he knew, she, he was, she was 12 years younger than him. She was pretty, she was young, but most importantly, Catholic, from good family, not political, and would just be an asset to Jack Kennedy. And it worked, clearly, because she's still revered today. Anyone who knows me knows of my love for Jackie. And, of course, everybody knows the fashion stuff. They know the iconic status that she got. Of course, she was um, widowed. So the the outpouring of support and love the country gave her as the first modern era widow of a slain president. That That was a generational scar for a lot of people, and she was kind of the symbol of that. Um, behind that, though, and one of the great things about your series is you actually talk about their relationships with the president. We know all the stories about JFK. Uh, he did a lot of things. He had a lot of sex. He even occasionally had sex with his wife. What was their actual relationship like, though? Like you said, it was kind of an arranged marriage. They did have affection for each other. They'd known each other for a while. They ran in the same circles. What was their actual relationship beyond all the tabloid stuff? Kennedy always said he didn't like a woman with opinions, um, sort of a product of his father. The Kennedy boys went to play around. The Kennedy girls were straight-laced, demure, married, no cheating. So he said he liked that. I mean, she wasn't unintelligent. She was uh, multilingual. She had a job before she met him. She went to top colleges. She was a very intelligent woman, but she wasn't political. They did have affection for one another, but and Jackie did think, no, going in, who she was marrying, but her father was an adulterer and she said that's what men are like, but she was not prepared for how bad he was. He really was a love rat to the point where she nearly left him. She had to be paid, allegedly, to stay because that would kill his political career. It was only after the death of their son, Patrick, that they really reconciled. But obviously only a few months after that, Kennedy died. How much of the Jackie Kennedy mythology and JFK, by extension, kind of lingers over any time you start talking about the first ladies? Like we said, she's the first TV one, so she's the first mass media one. She's kind of the, when you talk about, you know, fashion and the the photogenic part of it, that's kind of the standard. Talk about how that's kind of been the, the building of the mythology of the modern first lady. That's kind of who people start comparing them to, isn't it? Well, yeah, because she was so popular, they were always going to compare it to the most popular person, as every president would be compared to Lincoln or Washington, perhaps. So she's sort of the standard bearer. She had no major scandals in office. She was intelligent without being, you know, maybe too threatening, which I think a lot of people don't like, especially in women. She was the standard bearer to which all first ladies are compared. Melania Trump's compared to her for a fashion. Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton was compared to her. Everybody is compared to her. She is sort of the model. You want to be compared to Jackie Kennedy. Another woman who put up with a lot from a very highly suspect personal character man was her, um, I guess, successor as first lady, uh, Lady Bird Johnson, LBJ. I All through the Trump years, I've kind of chuckled a little bit because people talk about how uncouth uh, Trump is. I was like, you ought to read up on LBJ. Trump's a piker compared to this guy. <laughs> um, 
LBJ was a very vulgar man, a very loud man, a very brash man. He welded power and he didn't hide it. He was just, you know, bigger than life in a lot of ways. Lady Bird Johnson managed to really carve herself out a little niche as first lady and as her own personality. And you want to talk about contentious relationships, though, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall on some of their conversations over the year. But tell folks, maybe generationally removed, she doesn't get talked about. You know, again, Jackie Kennedy probably overshadows her a little bit. Talk about her, because she's really a fascinating character in American history, not just as a first lady, just as a woman. Today, a Southern Belle who had to work um, to help her family. She was very intelligent. She got a good inheritance, which she used very wisely to create her own radio stations to fund her husband's campaign. She was very much the demure Southern Belle, quiet, genteel. She said her husband came before anybody else, even her daughters. And she was a moderating force to her husband. I mean, don't get me wrong, he treated her absolutely terribly. But he did love her. I guess in some kind of way he loved her and she was the one who could calm him down. If you wanted to go to get something into him, you went to her first. She apologised to Secret Service when he was rude to them. She apologised to everyone when he was rude to them because that was pretty much guaranteed LBJ being rude to somebody. I, I find it amazing. People like JFK, people like LBJ, they didn't have to deal with the internet, how much different their presidencies and their <laughs> legacies would be if they had the internet. Because I mean, this stuff's all out there now. A lot of people don't read it because they're not history nerds like you and me. Um, I had an uncle that actually worked in the LBJ White House. The stories of that guy and the stuff he got away, he, he literally exposed himself to the press on multiple occasions. Like the stuff that happened back then, we think the press... And the media is bad now. Can you imagine if there was an internet when these guys, when the Kennedy brothers were doing what they were doing? It, it's mind boggling, isn't it? It's mad. It's like if Joe Biden started, you know, sleeping with Angela Jolie, the big, beautiful movie star, like Kennedy did with Monroe. Oh, that would break the internet and not a few people's eyeballs. Uh, moving on to other matters. Let's talk about a first lady who's probably in the rare category. She's probably more famous for what she did after the White House than being in the White House. Betty Ford. Um, of course, Gerald Ford has a very unique presidency because he kind of took the bullet to heal the nation after Nixon. We all know that he was, a you know, an honorable man. But Betty Ford, with her addiction stuff, this is long before people, you know, mental health and addiction really came to the forefront. She's really known the Betty Ford Center and that stuff. It's pretty rare for a first lady to get that kind of publicity after the White House, but she managed it. She was a very remarkable lady who said she would give her life for her husband to have her polling numbers. Conservative Republicans, especially within his administration, you know, like Dick Cheney is one example, didn't particularly like her because she was so outspoken on everything from abortion to adultery, gay rights, part everything. And but she was popular. People liked her because she was candid. She was honest. I think they wanted more of a Pat Nixon, someone who would just sort of blend into the background, not rock the vote a bit. But she revolutionised the office of first lady when she talks about her breast cancer. Millions of women got checked because you didn't talk about that then, especially when it was a women's health in such a sensitive area. And she encouraged women to get help for alcoholism and addiction because you know up until that point in history women didn't really work so many housewives turned to drink and drugs because 
they had no outlet for other things because they had no choice in what they did. And it was seen as okay, you know, you could have a social drink and you could have your painkillers. But then Betty Major, it was okay to say, look how it affects your family and things like that. And the thing about her is, and this is one of those things, again, the internet nowadays, we would have known it. Most people probably didn't realize that that came from a very personal place with her because like a lot of people that take up uh, advocacy over addiction issues and domestic issues, her father who lost her, I think she was 16 when he died, something very young, drank himself into an early grave. People didn't probably know that piece of the story, but that's really what drove her pretty much the rest of her life. It drove her in her marriage and her devotion to her husband. And it drove her when she went to go about her advocacy too, didn't it? Well, it's believed he killed himself. Obviously, back then it was fussed up because suicide was such a big taboo. But she was terrified of people finding out. It's the same with Eleanor Roosevelt, whose father, he didn't really technically kill himself. I don't think he meant to, but he was in like a drunk maniac thing when he fell out of a window. But she didn't want people to find out. She was kind of about everything, but that was, you know, off limits. Because it, people was questioning her husband's presidency. It's crazy. But even... You know, the idea of somebody being a bit mentally unstable or unfortunately hurting themselves, you didn't talk about it. Yeah. And so much of what we now understand as mental health back in the older days, people just self-medicated because they didn't they maybe didn't know what it was or how to handle it. And alcohol was the thing there. One more from that generation, though. And this, the amazing thing is they just celebrated their anniversary. We still have both of them. Uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency is not at the top of the list. But if you're going to have presidential marriages, he he might be one, two, three, somewhere real, real high on that list with Rosalind Carter. Mighty. Some six years just gone the other day. I can't imagine being amazing. married to somebody for that long. That's longer than the normal lifespan. They've been married. That's exactly. Amazing. God bless them. But anyway, tell us about Rosalind Carter. Um, she and Jimmy got married when they were very young, but they also had the benefit of they're both very long lived. They're both in the late nineties. So I mean, you know, the youth and long lived, it sort of helps to create a long marriage. But probably one of the most stable and loving marriages she sat in on cabinet meetings, which I don't think is particularly appropriate for a uh, non-official, but she only wrote notes. She didn't really sort of interject. She was her husband's counsel. They had four children. No hints of scandal apart from Jimmy's lust in his heart for other women comments, which obviously will probably haunt him forever. And I'm sure that Rosalind never let that one go. But she was an advocate for mental health, which I think is really great because, again, 70s, 80s, very taboo era. Known for just being a nice a young a nice woman in a loving marriage and sort of what I think everyone would aspire to in such in their future marriage that was a playboy interview where Jimmy Carter had a moment of being too honest and saying the quiet part out loud that everybody's had the same issue with but how quaint does that feel after the last couple of years of scandal and everything <laughs> we're doing how quaint is that that the guy's like yeah I might have thought about another woman like three times in my whole life to the woman I've been married to for 76 years I think we'd take that scandal nowadays wouldn't we yeah. Yeah. Bless their hearts. They're still alive and kicking down in Georgia. Um, we're going to get into the modern era. Sarah Stoke joining us. I love talking about this stuff because it, it gives us perspective on history and politics. We come back. Uh, we got some heavy hitters coming up on the first lady list. Nancy Reagan, Michelle Obama, Melania Trump that we just had. Of course, Jill Biden. Also, the both Bushes. A lot to cover still. Sarah Stoke on her tell right after this.
Well, we might have heard tell uh, Sarah Stooks, about first lady. She's our historian friend. We love having her on the program. Getting ready to do vice president, she said. Can't wait to dig into that one. Uh, let's go to the superstar couple. Uh, and quite literally, really, when you think, you know, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, long marriage. It was actually his second marriage, believe it or not. That was a little bit of a controversy at the time. It's another one of those things that seems quaint nowadays after we just had a president that had only his third wife. Um, Nancy Reagan, total advocate for her husband. They were just mad for each other. You always think of them as a couple. She did have some controversies, especially in the 80s with some of the social stuff that was going on. But talk about Nancy Reagan beyond the just being Ronnie's. She always called him Ronnie no matter what. Who was the actual lady, the actual person underneath all that? Well, she came from a very established uh, background. She was born Anne Frances um, Robbins, but took the name Nancy Davis in honour of her stepfather, who was actually a friend of Reagan's. He was a um, celebrated um, neurosurgeon. Uh, surgeon who was she was an actress who obviously met Reagan fell in love got married he was initially a bit hesitant to get married after his first marriage ended in failure but obviously it worked out pretty well for them actor William Holden was their best man obviously um, she helped raise his children for his first marriage and children of their own um, she's very controversial in that she could be a bit prickly people said Reagan was lovely she was a bit mean sometimes but as you said she is mainly devoted to Reagan that is that is her because she said everything revolves around him she didn't have any ambitions beyond him including their children which was meant that she had a pretty poor relationship with them actually yeah the stepchildren and the stepmother did not get along well one of the colorful little bits about Nancy, um, which I guess is a little understandable under the circumstances, but you touched on it in your piece in elections-daily.com, though, was when Reagan got shot, she got a little bit superstitious and a little bit, she went from protective to overprotective, but tell that story just a little bit because it's kind of funny now in hindsight. I kind of get it. You know, you're trying to reach for something because he did, we did find out years later, he was about a quarter of an inch from dying if that bullet had been just a little bit over. But Nancy did not react to that particularly well, did she? Yeah, well, she started consulting an astrologer to map when was best for Reagan to go out and do events. And she basically booked his schedule, so she had control of it. And she was mocked relentlessly. Um, You know, some say, is it comparable to religion or is it just, you know, superstition? You know, people have various views. And I think even people who believe in astrology, I'm not one of them probably think it was a bit much but yeah your husband nearly died in office that's pretty horrific I mean she would have seen what it would have done to you know poor Jackie Kennedy so I think you can kind of understand being a bit nervous and the only reason why he survived was because he was in such good health if he'd been any and he was pretty old as well so fair placement but if he had been in any worse condition he would have probably died all right. One of the real unique women in history, because she's one of only two women to be both first lady and the mother of a president. That's a pretty exclusive club. Uh, Barbara Bush. She's actually a descendant of Franklin Pierce, who was one of our worst presidents ever, even though he was most think the most handsome president. You can take that for what you will. Um, very interesting story. Um, they met. Uh, he went off to World War II. He came back from World War II. They got married. 
long marriage. Of course, the political dynasty, um, Bush senior did have his affairs. He had a long running affair where his uh, secretary actually traveled with him was kind of well known, but by all measures, especially in political terms, a very successful and happy marriage all told. Yeah. Oh, completely. Obviously they had, um, the ups and downs, their daughter, Robin tragically dying of leukemia in the fifties, which is a bad enough disease now, but obviously back then you were very, you know, it, it wasn't really a positive, it wasn't, you weren't going to have a positive outcome by any means, but she was a very strong world and intelligent woman. You know, she sort of, she never really worked beyond marriage as was sort of the tradition of the time, but that doesn't make her by any means a lesser first lady. She could be very opinionated and she got in trouble when she implied that um, Geraldine Ferrero was a word that rhymed with rich in her words. So, yeah, she was um, a very powerful, very intelligent woman who oversaw her children's lives and education, helped her somewhat with dyslexia, which um, made her interested in literacy and uh, learning dis- um, difficulties. So pretty remarkable woman who everyone just thinks of that nice white-haired old lady. I'll know she was fierce. And one of my favorite Barbara Bush stories, um, W told it when they did the funeral for his father. Um, she was absolutely fierce. There's this legendary story where they're at the compound in Kenny Bunkport, Maine, which was their summer house, the, the Bush compound there. And she did not want the Secret Service following her around anymore because she's no longer a public official. And I don't care who's trying to kill me. You're not going to follow me around. I'm going to live my life. And somebody, and they, George said it was WW said it was George. Somebody told a secret service agents to tailor anyway. And she went to the store or whatever and caught him tailing her. She made him take him, take her back to the compound. And they had a meeting in a room with the former president, the other former president, the head of the secret service detail and Barbara Bush, just dressing them all down, telling them and, and using pretty colorful language, depending on which version of the story you believe. This was a fierce woman when you have a husband that's a president, a son that's a president. I guess you kind of have to be. But she was very, very, very strong, wasn't she? Yeah, she was very, very, well, she, yeah, because think about it. If Reagan had died, she would have been first lady quite a few years earlier, eight years earlier. And, you know, raising children, I mean, all her children, apart from uh, the dealing departed Robin, were involved in politics in public life in some uh, respect. I mean, Jeb could have been president in a crazy what-if-please-clap world. Please clap. Uh, Since we're pairing them anyway, let's just go ahead and talk about Laura Bush. Kind of the opposite of Barbara in a lot of ways, although they had some similarities. They were both, you know, very, very well um, apportioned women, very proper. They, They knew how to play the role. She was a librarian of all things. Um, and then of course, W's been very open. You know, he was basically a fall down drunk for about a decade. She kind of helped him through that. He found religion. He stopped drinking. He was dedicated family man with her by all accounts. Talk about Laura Bush, because she's another one of those. She, she mostly stayed out of the spotlight, pretty much avoided controversy of any kind. Um, and yet she was just kind of always there kind of, you know, textbook first lady stuff. Yeah. I think she gets forgotten because she's between Hillary and Clinton and Michelle Obama, two, you know, Ivy League educated women with full career. Well, I'm not saying that her career wasn't full, but, you know, they were lawyers, so extra education, etc. But she was very popular because she wasn't at all controversial. Her 
issues included reading, um, heart failure, breast cancer and women in Afghanistan, which is probably like the probably safest issues any first lady could go for. And, you know, up until that point, I think probably the Bush presidency was a time where it was more likely a woman could become president. But she was still, you know, a bit of the old school generation. She was born in the 40s, married in the 70s. So while, you know, the sexual revolution had happened, there was that more tradition of, you know, being a bit more demure. But she wasn't political either. She said, look, I'm not interested. She voted, but she wasn't, you know, she was a bit of a Jackie. She didn't really care that much, which I think helps a lot because if she'd been tarnished with her husband's brush, then she'd be very unpopular because obviously we know how his presidency ended. Joining us. Okay, her predecessor, of course, you just mentioned her, the opposite of that, the uber ambitious, uber political Hillary Clinton. Where do we start with her? Because we know a lot more about the Clinton presidency now than we did then. Again, another one of these, we we first got the internet with the scandals. You know, that was kind of the, the Drudge Report and all that that got the Lewinsky story out there. But it wasn't like it was now. Um, the stuff he got away with in Arkansas, we know the allegations and all that long before that. Where do we start parsing out Hillary Clinton? Because she was a senator in her own right. Later, she ran for president a couple of times. There's just a lot of stuff there. But as far as her being a first lady, how do you kind of view her and package her up when it comes to to the historical nature of being a first lady and then becoming a political figure in her own right afterwards? Well, obviously, I try to be as nice as possible when it comes to the first ladies, though I was honest if they had their, their shortfalls. Um, not a huge fan of Hillary. I respect her in some right. I mean, she went to Yale Law when probably not many women did. She was, she was very intelligent. I'm not going to dispute any of that about her, and I respect her. But I think a first lady should be allowed to have opinions. You know, I mean, if I was first lady, I certainly would. And I think it's great when they have their views on politics if you look at you know Eleanor Roosevelt for example my favorite first lady but she made the mistake of trying to basically be an official when she wasn't elected and it'd be the same for any man woman related to the president you know when she was put on um, leading um the commission on health care and trying to do legislation fair enough she had some experience but people questioned it why is this unelected person leading the charge and and she wasn't popular she made comments about stay-at-home mothers which I know also they are rarer now but they are just as equal and deserving as respect as career women and I think that was a very very bad idea I always wondered with Hillary you know I think what you just said about her being an official when she wasn't then there was the stand by your man stuff um there was the uh victim shaming that she engaged in as part of protecting the Clinton brand, which was self-protection for her. You just can't talk about the Hillary stuff without the hypocrisy stuff, because that's what really sunk her on a lot of this. And some of it's probably a little unfair, but some of it she brought on herself. But when she was actually first lady, 
Um, the healthcare thing, I think, just kind of dented her where they put her in charge of healthcare and that failed. I don't know that she ever really recovered because from that point on, she never longer got to be seen as a first lady. From then on, it was always, oh, she's political. And I yeah. think that I think that's the big difference when it comes to Hillary is I don't think she ever really had a period in the White House where she was just the first lady and nothing else. She tried. She did a few sort of, you know, events like the Easter egg roll and Christmas. But, yeah, like I said, she was never people said she should have been president instead. Kind of that kind of, you know, I think there's been a few first yeah. ladies where they would have sort of been candidates for president and that they were very political ambitious women yeah and then we had edith wilson who actually did it but that's another topic for another day uh michelle obama uh fascinating thing she actually i you mentioned in your piece i didn't know this. she actually met uh barack or barry then uh because she was his mentor when he was an intern <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting story but uh you're talking about ambitious she's the opposite she tells everybody that will listen that she has no ambition for politics she didn't like being in the white house particularly because of the political stuff and the things that went on but a very smart astute woman um not a whole lot of major controversy although she is outspoken and opinionated on certain things but talk about michelle obama kind of one of our more contemporary first ladies i mean you know she went to princeton harvard she's only first lady with two Ivy League degrees so you know you've got to say that's pretty darn impressive and I think yeah like you said she is political in somewhat of it you know she has her views but I think unlike Hillary she has the benefit of that she's not politically ambitious for her own sake she doesn't want to be involved in politics as a politician and I think people like her more than like Hillary for that because she's still an intelligent woman and a good role model but then she has had her critics when she said she's never really been proud of America and things like that I kind of understand what she was trying to say but the way she said it isn't the greatest way of conveying your views so but I don't think people would remember that as much as Hillary's mistakes maybe people have a short memory when it comes to Michelle as opposed to Hillary yeah, I think Hillary shades Michelle a little bit because Hillary is so ambitious. I think a lot of people just assumed that Michelle was going to be ambitious like that, and she's not, which I think is a little, I have my criticisms of the Obamas, but I think that's a little unfair. I think she got tagged, especially since Hillary ran against her husband. They're like, oh, well, she'll run too, like Hillary. And it's like, no, they're different people, very different people. So I think that was a little unfair. All right, Melania Trump. Um, we've got a little distance from the Trump administration. I think history will be decently kind to her, even though her husband continues to do things that will probably cause history to not be kind to him. I, I think she bore it about as well as somebody in that circumstances could bear it and handle it. Uh, what's your take on uh, our last uh, former first lady that we had, Melania Trump? I don't know if history will be particularly kind because I think there's very much an anti-feminist slant the treatment of Melania Trump. Now, she posed nude as a model, which is something I would never do, but that is her prerogative. And people criticised her for it, but she's never been hypocritical about it. She's never been like an open prude 
or say, you know, women shouldn't do this, women shouldn't wear that. And the people who say celebrate body positivity and celebrate other women are extremely critical of her. And I believe if she'd been a Democrat or not married to Donald Trump, she probably would have been on the cover of a lot of fashion magazines because she's an elegant person. I wouldn't say she was an outstanding first lady, but she didn't want the job. And you've got to sort of understand that. I don't know. I don't know what their relationship is because obviously there's an arrangement there. People like that do not have normal marriages. They they just don't. They're not like people that are working nine to five jobs. I don't think she wanted to be there. And I I I give her slack for the fact that she didn't want to be there, but she's she she went on with it anyway. So and and I'm no fan of her husband's, but I don't think she did any great disgrace to the country. I know political opponents will smear her for this, that, and the other, but it could have been a lot worse. Can you imagine if she was uber politically political like her husband was i think it was about as good as it could have possibly been is that a fair way to put it yeah i mean i, w- I wouldn't say she's ever going to be ranked as a highly you know highly placed first lady you know, her campaign against bullying is a little strange considering what her husband can be like on twitter or was before he was unceremoniously banned um or she, she had that i don't care jacket so i make bertha comments which sound bad, but then you remember she didn't really do much else in terms of scandal or being a first lady generally. Yeah. All right, real quick before we got to let you go, though, our current first lady, uh, Jill Biden, not her given name, I'll let you get into that in a second, but uh, she has her doctorate in education, first first lady to have an official job outside of the White House. I think that's actually something we'll probably see more of as we have, you know, we've already had a couple of lawyers, I think. I think nowadays, if you had a Hillary Clinton or even Michelle Obama, I, I think if they wanted to work, it would be accepted now. I think we'll see that in the future. But we, we don't want to do a legacy thing because she's still doing it. But Jill Biden as our current first lady. She's not really had the opportunities to do as much, maybe because of COVID's put a damper on a lot of events. You know, Easter egg roll and everything like that is associated with the first lady, which maybe gives her more time to go and do other things. But I think she has options if she wants somebody to step in. Like Kamala Harris can do some of it. Kamala Harris's husband, their daughter, any they she has the opportunity. You know, all the like older first ladies who were maybe poorly would have their daughters or daughter-in-laws do it. I don't think she's sort of a traditional first lady in that. You know, she's not going to do the responsibilities as much as we'd expect. Even like Michelle Obama did that, and she was a very intelligent, educated woman. Um, as for if they'll work, I think that will depend on who the president is. I think Republicans might be a bit more wary. I'm not saying they oppose women working, but they might be a bit more thinking how a first lady would act. So if Ron DeSantis became president, how would his wife be versus you know, any Democrat? Yeah, she's pretty traditional, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, one last thing on Jill Biden, though. She, she's had some missteps uh, vocally. I think I, her current controversy down in San Antonio, San Antonio is a city I've spent a lot of time in over the years. Um, the taco thing, she said. Breakfast tacos, breakfast burritos. Is it, Let's not even get into that portion. I, I think <laughs> I blame the speechwriter because she's just reading the copy they gave her. But still, like, you got to have a little bit of bearing. But she can't be doing stuff like that. She is going to start getting flack. But that's part and parcel of the comm shop of this entire White House. They're not real good at stuff like that. They do a lot of cell phones like that. 
Anyway, Sarah Stuck, we love having you. We love talking about this stuff. Gives us some historical perspective on current events. Uh, you I already told us you're going to do vice presidents next. I can't wait for that series. Let folks know where you're writing, what you're writing on, and your social media so they can follow you until we get you back on her tell again. Um, Elections Daily, um, The Malad, which is a, a British publication. My um, Twitter is at Sarah underscore Stook, which is S-T-O-O-K. I forgive you if you anybody mispronounces it because everybody does apparently or can't spell it. So it'll be easy to find me because there's not many other Stooks or Sarah Stooks on Twitter. Uh, either which way, however you say it, you do fantastic work. We love having you on. We'll do it again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she's back again. It's been a little bit since we've seen her, but we're always thrilled to have her back. She's an expert in healthcare policy, another one of our great young voices contributors. Elise Amidro has rejoined the program. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thrilled to have you back. Appreciate you taking time in your busy schedule. Uh, let's talk about um, the problem. See, this is one of those things where it's like everybody knows it's a problem. Everybody talks about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. And we already know how this goes because we've seen it with Omnibus. We've seen it with government funding. We, you pick whatever you want. We even did this with health care reform, if you all the way back to the ACA. Our Congress in America seems to only be able to legislate by emergencies. They've really got an emergency pending on the horizon with uh, Medicare. Where do we even start with this? Because the clock's ticking. We've been saying it for 20, 30, 40 years, all my adult life. But we're getting within three, four, five years of this thing now. How do we even start getting the people to pay attention to this thing? That's a great question. There are many, many ways we can get people to pay attention, but it's hard to do it when the emergency doesn't feel real. So pretty much taking a step back, what we're talking about here is, is Medicare Part A. It's the part that pays for the hospital services of people who are on Medicare. For the most part, it's people who are elderly, and there's just not enough money to go around for their services. So what's going to happen is currently the prediction is 2028 for it to be insolvent. That means there's not enough money to pay for all the care. That should matter to people, but apparently it doesn't currently. I didn't know this until I read your piece. Somehow I missed this too, but now people say, well, how can the something not be funded? Because Congress can just wave a magic wand and make more money. Well, that's kind of true budgeting wise. I didn't realize this until I read your piece, but it almost went insolvent last year. They brought in 32, $362 billion, 360 went out and people say $2 billion, but in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of a close call on the budget line item, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we're, we always do that, right? We're very, very close to it, but we're not there yet. So people don't feel it. But it's not the first time this is happening. Like this has happened in the past too, in the 90s. And you know, at the time there was a fix. The problem is when Medicare was set up in the first place, there, people were going to be on Medicaid, Medicare only for a few years because life expectancy was quite short then. And so we, we thought we could afford um, this generous program. But now that people get to live, you know, a couple decades into their retirement, which is fantastic news, it just makes the program extremely expensive. And we haven't kind of changed the configuration of, you know, the financing of it, which means that there's just enough, not enough money now. And it's not just the money part of this. 
Uh, the population is a lot bigger now than it was when this program first came in. We are up to 62 million beneficiaries. That number is going to continue to rise. Um, is that a good way to talk about this? Because here's the thing. We start talking, you know, you're a policy person. You know this. You start talking to people, you know, billions of dollars and 20-year plans. and t- their, their eyes just glaze over. People can't get their heads around that number. Should we maybe attack this from that point of view of like, hey, we're up to 330 million Americans. We got 62 million beneficiaries. There's more of them and every American that works. You're paying for this. Would that maybe be a better way of attacking this and maybe the fiscal policy side of this just to get people to kind of get their heads around it? That is absolutely the way I want to go about it. I personally care about this because I see how much I pay for Medicare every month because that's taken out of my paycheck. And I don't even see the the part that my employer pays, but it's the same part. (laughs) So there's a lot of my compensation that goes directly to Medicare. And currently, beneficiaries on Medicare get three times as much from the program as what they put in. So Medicare beneficiaries love to think that they've earned it, right? Like their whole life, they contributed to Medicare and now they're just cashing out. But in reality, they're cashing out three times as much. It's kind of the best investment they could have ever made. So it bothers me because for people my age, um, we're putting a lot of money into it, but it's definitely not going to be there when we retire. So we're just giving this gift to, to the elderly and People love to complain about how we can't, you know, have houses now because they're too expensive. We don't have enough financial in- independence. Well, maybe this is one way of looking at it is this money is just being given to the older generation. Is that really fair? I, I would think it's not. Right. But this is where the politics part of this comes into the policy discussion, because like you said, if you've watched that go out of your paycheck every year for 30, 40 years, whatever your working career is, you feel entitled to it. And they are to an extent. I don't know how we ever explain that to people because especially elderly people, they're like, look, I paid into this all my life. I deserve whatever they're going to give me. I get that. I mean, that's that's completely on a human level. Fine. How do you ever craft any kind of a policy initiative to get around that? Because I don't think you're going to make any change with that generation. That's also the most politically dominant generation. They have the highest output for voters. Like They're not going to do it. So is there something here where we have to just use it as like an example for the younger generation? Like, look, whatever reforms we do, there's somewhere you're going to have to just draw a line and say they're going to get theirs and everybody else is going to wind up another pot. I know that's politically, you know, dynamite. But isn't that the only option here is at some point you're just going to have to draw a line and go, okay, they get all theirs and everybody else. We're going to have to do something different. Yes, that's that's kind of where the piece is going is we want to show that the sooner we act, the less painful it's going to be. Because what we want to avoid is just feeling the pain directly. Like that's when people will start acting. That's when Congress will start making decisions is when there's not enough money. And truly what it means is providers like doctors and and, uh, nurses and hospitals will get less money to take care of those patients. So that will have a real impact. It will mean that premiums will go up or out-of-pocket costs will go up for Medicare beneficiaries because it's not free care that they get, right? But it's heavily subsidized care. So they will feel it that way too. It's kind of... I think that, you know, the best solution will probably be a mixture of all these things. What worries me that uh, is that eventually we'll just have gimmicks. Like you said earlier, we'll just get, have budget gimmicks and it's going to be a short-term fix. But we really can't afford that because in the long run, the, the problem just keeps compounding. Now, we've done this before. Like we talked about before, Congress loves to legislate by emergency because it puts people on the spot and they can get things done easier. Um, I'm old enough to remember it, uh, 98 midterms on top of the impeachment stuff, which was the top item. 
Uh, Medicare reform was the big ticket item. That's the first election I voted on. I remember it well. There was a, a fear of insolvency. So in 1997, 98, running up that 98 midterm, they actually did a fix on that. But as you started talking about in this piece, if they wait to the last minute because of the way this is structured and because of the severity of the problem now, this isn't something where Congress is really going to be able to last minute fix it effectively, is it? No, it's not. It's going to take time anyways. And there's going to be a bit of I, I think there's going to be a bit of time during which there won't be enough money. Right. Or maybe we'll just find this gimmick. But then long term, we should really be kicking in with um, uh, real reforms. So some things could include like. There, there are things that we don't like, right? Raising taxes is probably going to happen. Raising the Medicare payroll tax just so that we can um, replenish this fund. But in the long run, it's really structurally, there's a lot of waste in Medicare. I think we all know that. Um, and so then that's like one way of thinking about, you know, maybe there are ways to cut the costs of hospitals. And then there's a lot of industry capture too, where, um, you know, we're providing services to the elderly that maybe they don't need or actually make them sicker. There too, we, we need to start actually looking under the hood and asking, what is it that Medicare beneficiaries are getting and is it really helping them? Yeah. And we've seen some supporting court uh, rulings lately about the paybacks and the, and the structure of that funding. There's a lot of moving pieces here, isn't it? Because I know we're talking legislatively here and positive, po- legislatively and policy-wise here, but there's a Supreme Court piece here because a lot of this stuff gets adjudicated. The healthcare industry is a massive industry. They got a lot of lobbying power. They got a lot of lawyers. What's a realistic time frame? Like if you just started today and even if everybody was on board, wouldn't it be like two, three years just getting any kind of meaningful legislation done? It seems to me like this is such a big problem. This isn't going to be like an omnibus bill or even like the ACA where they can write one bill and deal with all this, can they? Correct. And this is what prompted me and my co-author, Lisa Graber, to to write the piece. We were really bothered by the fact that this was not underway. Like there has barely been any discussion of this issue on the Hill. And like you said, it takes a long time to build consensus around a solution on the Hill. And so now is now is just already too late. But if we're going to be addressing the issue, the conversations need to happen ASAP. Like we can't stress that enough. That, that happened much sooner. Like you said, in the 90s, the conversation had been going on for years before they actually passed a, resol- a, a solution. Right. And, you know, you do the policy stuff, but, you know, you also live here. You watch TV, you watch streaming. I'm seeing all kinds, you know, the abortion ads are all going up now because of that. I'm seeing lots of economic ads, lots of political ads about gas prices. I do politics for a living. I don't see any discussion whatsoever about this topic. And I'm looking for it. Like I have you on today. This is the second time you've been on talking about this topic with us. So we're talking about it. I don't hear anybody talking about this outside the policy realm and just kind of the the nerdy wonky folks. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. Not at all. And partly is it is because, I mean, two things we just discussed that it was not people didn't perceive the emergency yet. So it feels like it's a non, non-issue. And whoever goes out first talking about it is going to look like a bad guy, right? Because who wants to strip people of their Medicare? No one likes that. So it's not uh, popular. It's going to be painful no matter what. So there's no incentive for anyone to do anything about it. Like there's no credit that can be taken for a verdict, a crisis that people never felt. So that's one aspect. I think that's just not uh, helping. And it's it's bipartisan. It doesn't stir up, um, you know, the 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 rage of either side. It will be something that people need to come together um, to fix. And so I think that's also difficult because bipartisanship is not very popular these days. 
Yeah, but we we also know how that goes with when when the American public realizes what's happening here, there's going to be rage on a uh, probably unprecedented level. Uh, Lee Zamidro joining us. We're going to take a quick break. Okay, that's the problem. She's got some solutions and some ideas to talk about it. We always like to have both ends here. So we're going to talk about some of the things we may be able to do about fixing this, what Congress can do, and other things like that. Also, some policy stuff that's not overly complicated for this complex problem. Elise Almidro, great friend of ours on the program. More with her as her tale continues right after this. Back to her tell we're talking a little healthcare policy specifically the time bomb that is medicare and medicaid uh looming on the horizon our good friend elise amidro joining us all right we talked about the problem look and again this is a problem everybody knows it's a problem just nobody's talking about it because it's not you know right in front of everybody's faces what's some of the things we can do now we know the congressional makeup is going to let's just project a little bit let's assume we have a split congress and white house again president biden's got two more years we're assuming the Republicans will probably get at least the House, maybe the Senate. We'll see. So let's say the next two years, we're probably not going to get any kind of big ticket legislation like that. That puts us to 2024. That's the very narrow window to try to get something done here, isn't it? It is short. Yes. And the we, we keep predicting when Medicare Party is going to be insolvent uh, until so last year's reports from the Medicare trustees said that it was going to be 2026. They've adjusted it upwards this year to 2028. So it seems like we have a lot of time, right? Because, you know, last year that would have made it, you know, two years or three years to to act. Now it's a little bit more uh, time. But the reality is uh, we can do it soon enough. So, yeah, we we need to really start thinking about things that we can do. And one of them would be, like I I was suggesting in my piece, not something that is uh, a good solution in my view, but maybe a necessary one at, uh, at first is just to raise the Medicare tax that uh, is just going to be very painful for people, especially as we go into a potential recession, as inflation is really high. That just means less money in their pockets. Um, but that might be one painful way of addressing that, at least in the short term. While we think about longer term financing solutions, like is there a different way that we could put people, um, like, you know, help, help people access hospital services? not with Medicare Part A, but with Medicare Part C, which is Medicare Advantage. So it's the, the plan that allows um, beneficiaries to actually choose what plan they would like to have. This is a much more uh, financially sustainable plan, and it gives beneficiaries much more um, ownership over their care and over the coverage that they have. So I think that's actually a nice solution is to put people in a place that's not going to be affected by the insolvency. And in a perfect world, this would be part of a larger healthcare reform of the whole system, because part of the problem here is, and you're a policy person, so you can speak to this, kind of explain it to me like I'm five, because again, this is really complicated, but you know, the trust fund and Medicare, that works. It's not necessarily in parallel. It kind of interweaves with the private healthcare system as well. You can't really separate the two. So isn't there going to be a huge problem here where you're trying to reform one without reforming the greater overall system? So no matter what you're going to do, 
you're going to kind of wind up in the shell game where you're fixing one problem and causing three more. Is that, is that an accurate way to describe that? It is. So long as we rely on the government governing the way healthcare is done in the U.S., which is truly the case, uh, we'll keep, you know, it's a whack-a-mole, given whack-a-mole. We, we just keep pushing the problem to other parts of the system. So exactly to your point, Medicare pricing influences the rest of the system, right? So if we change something to how Medicare pays for things, we'll see it ripple into the rest of the of the, um, the system. So if we lower reimbursement rates, like if the federal government decides we can't pay as much for healthcare services, now it needs to be, you know, this lower rate because we're to, to fix the insolvency, then it might mean that private payers are going to pay more. So their prices are going to go up. Or it might mean that some hospital just won't be able to survive. So then we'll have some hospitals go down, right? So I think all those uh, cases will be made. And the, the fear is just that the, the biggest players, the ones that have really captured the market, will get to dictate those terms because they hold a lot of political sway. So I don't think we're in a really good situation. But the, the sooner we can start talking about those things, the more we have time to let the best arguments rise to the surface and at least know what we're getting into when we pass reforms. Yeah. Okay. So let's put this on a, on a personal level so folks can understand it. If you have a household budget and you're insolvent or you're running out of money or you're running into debt, most people know, well, the first thing you do is you try to cut expenses somewhere. Is there anything in here where we can try to cut some expenses, either the executive branch or the legislative branch? I know the court system is just washed with you know debates over the reimbursement system. That's kind of a separate thing that's out of everybody's hands right now. Where, where could they do some cuts in a practical way that might actually, because people will get on the board with that before they probably will with the tax raises. So that's probably where they're going to go first because, you know, path of least resistance. Where do you think that might take shape? Well, I don't know. I feel like there's going to be a lot of resistance because it's a smaller group of interest, uh, interest groups, right? We'll have hospitals that will not want to have the cuts, but it, it is, that's actually a good way of doing things is to just let Medicare beneficiaries feel the cost a little more. Like I said earlier, they get a lot of benefits out of Medicare, and that's been uh, a situation that is increasingly unsustainable. So, Medicare beneficiaries should, like, perhaps put their hand to their, you know, to their uh, wallets a little bit more often when it comes to their healthcare, so that they can make be, be more involved in their healthcare decisions, right? Like, if they know that when they go and receive care, this is how much they're going to be owing then they might just, you know, make a real trade-off kind of decision between the money that they might be sending and the care they're going to receive. Like, is it really worth it to them? So that's one way of, of putting back price signals into the system and letting people really decide if, if care is valuable to them or is it if it's worth the amount that it's going to cost. I think that's going to be a better way of reinjecting market forces into this system. Uh, should we call it trust fund or is there a better way to discuss the trust fund than just calling it a trust fund? Because people think trust fund, they think, oh, well, there's this big pile of money just sitting there waiting. And that's not really what's happening there, is there? It, it is. I mean, there is money, but it's being depleted. What's depleting it? Is it just government incompetence? Is it just government creep? I, I, you know, here's another area of this problem where it's been going on for so long, people don't even think about it anymore. It's like, okay, well, what actually depletes it? Is it is it Congress? pick in the pocket? Is it just not paying attention to it? What's the factors that have depleted it so badly? It's just like we're, we're spending so much more out of the, of the trust fund that comes in through revenue. So the, that's why like we're running out of what's in, in the fund. So the longer we go with the system, the, the less money there is in it. Yeah. 
Okay, I know it's hard because you said it, but give us a date. What's some of the drop dead dates here that we really need to be paying attention, especially voters? Because we know we work on, we talk about 2024 is probably the next time we're going to have any kind of legislation going through. Is it 2030 like you've talked about? I've seen some people talk about 2028 and 2027. Give us some deadlines and dates for the voters to be paying attention to here. 2028 is really when the uh, insolvency hits, according to this year's Medicare report, trustees report. Now, I think they're being a bit optimistic because last year, the the year was lower. It was 2026. That's when they thought it was going to go bankrupt. And it was because of the the fact that people were going back to the hospital after not having received care um, in the during during the pandemic. But now they're looking at, you know, more stable use of resources. And also they think that so many people um, passed away from COVID, sadly, that they won't be receiving care either. So that will lead to less um, expenses. I'm not convinced that that's entirely true, uh, but I do think that 2028 is kind of an, op- I do think that it's an optimistic uh, date. It might be sooner than that. So we're really looking at very, you know, a very near future kind of um, situation. Yeah, it's it's looking bleak, but uh, the good news is we have representative government. We could do something about it if we want to. Bad news is we usually get the government we deserve and we haven't paid attention to this. And here we are. Uh, Elizami Dro joining us as always. We really appreciate your time. You have great knowledge on this subject. Let folks know how they can follow you and what you've got going on until we see you again, hopefully with some good news about this, but I fear this will be an ongoing topic, my friend. That's right. I'm only trying to shed light on it. So hopefully more people will be picking up the, the um, this issue. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. Actually, that's the only place where I write. Um, I, my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E, last name Amedro, A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. We are linking to the piece uh, in the show notes. Make sure you read it in its entirety and make sure you're following her. Thank you so much for the time today. It's great to see and talk to you again. I know it uh, slid into your busy schedule. So thank you for the time and we'll talk again real soon, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, another returning guest, another of our Young Voices contributors. He's been here before, excited to have him back. I always like when I get a transport guy to talk to. We're going to be talking energy and environment more today. Uh, he's with the Show Me Institute out there in St. Louis. That's Missouri for those of you from Logan. They call that the Show Me State out there. Uh, Jacob Puckett, welcome back to the program, sir. Great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. How's things in energy land? Nice and calm, no headline news making, nothing, <laughs> nothing real serious going on. Why are we on this topic anyway? Well, you know, quite simply, the Biden administration is reaching for an energy policy lever that they should not be pulling. So they have their clean energy goals, and those goals or progress towards those goals is moving frustratingly slow, which you know, it's understandable. You know, other than inflation, what isn't frustratingly slow these days? But what they did to, to work around that is they turned to the Defense Production Act to speed up the process. Now, the Defense Production Act is a wartime measure to boost supplies critical to national security. It is not a genie that grants you policy wishes, which unfortunately, that is how the Biden administration is trying to use it. And ironically, uh, the administration itself is hampering the production of the very things that they're frustrated are not being produced. So it's all backwards how they're approaching it. Now, let's zoom out big picture, and then we'll come back into this a little bit, because we always like to do context here. We want to turn down the noise on this sort of thing. 
there's a very old joke in politics and there's a lot of truth to it, like a lot of jokes that uh, Democrat um, politicians, especially Democratic presidents and policymakers in Congress, their environmental policies only go as far as the nearest swing voter. Now, it's a little facetious, but there's some truth to that, because part of what the president's fighting up against here is he has a very loud, very progressive wing of his party. He, he himself has moved more progressive as he's aged. He he's always kind of been on the on the edge of the middle of the Democratic Party. So he's got he's more progressive now than he was during the Obama years, for sure. So he has all that going on behind him. But in front of him, he has economic headwinds in front of him. He has a worldwide energy crisis. We have uh, the war in Ukraine that's messing up energy and food production. There's a lot of this that's outside of his control. But that old adage I brought up, that's why this stuff gets sticky in a hurry, right? Because people don't really care about energy policy until gas prices go up or electricity bills go up or we have a blackout or taxes raise or something. This is the political reality, even though we talk about this in a policy world, you can't separate them, can you? Right. And energy policy is one thing. Energy policy results uh, are what people feel the most. And that's a very good point you bring up, Biden trying to uh, essentially have his foot on both sides of his party, trying to reach the swing voter who's you know, pretty upset and frustrated by gasoline prices, while also not trying to uh, essentially cross the climate lobby um, uh, on that side of the aisle. And you can see this tightrope walking that he's trying to do. On the one hand, he's trying to say that he's doing everything he can to increase oil production, to bring down gas prices. On the other hand, his uh, EPA is now considering further regulating the Permian Basin uh, in Texas and New Mexico, which is the most productive and lowest cost oil field in the U.S., which would only decrease U.S. oil production even further. So he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. We had this thing about a month ago now, um, Jacob Puckett joining us, where he wrote the open letter to the oil executives about the refineries. Now, to be fair here, the problems with refineries have been going on for decades. We haven't really built a brand new refinery since the late 70s, I believe. We keep rebuilding them, remaking them, things like this. There's in there's institutionally built-in problems with our energy production. I know we talk about drilling and opening for there's more to it than just that because the refinery process is broken. The transportation process is broken. The reason Permian Basin, where oil is the second greatest export after football down there, is that way is because you can just drive up to it, get it, and drive away. And then they, the refinery capacity, the logistics stuff, your transport guy, that all plays into this too. So when we're talking about drills and leasing and things like that, that's just a sliver of this. If we can't refine it and we can't export it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Right. You don't put raw oil in your car. You need to refine it and turn it into gasoline. Uh, now, you're right. The last time an oil refinery was built was the first term that Joe Biden had in the U.S. Senate all the way back in, I believe, 1973. Uh, so, yes, this is a decades long problem uh, that the U.S. has not increased its refining capacity anymore. As a matter of fact, we're going in the opposite direction. You have these huge companies who run who run the oil refineries are increasingly looking at converting these to biofuel refineries. So you don't, you don't put gasoline and diesel in anymore like you used to, so you can get a different product. And the reason that they're doing this, I, I think, is uh, they're seeing the political writing on the wall that um, 
this administration does not want them to, at, at the end of the day, increase fossil fuel production. So they're, they're understanding that they're not going to have the support um, that they would need for long-term stability, and they're, they're making decisions based on that. Yeah, Jake, you're probably joining us. Um, now, our friends overseas have gone to more extreme measures than we have. Um, Australia, Germany, France is even talking about it now, bringing back online some coal fire plants to try to uh, adapt to the energy crisis. I don't think we're going to be able to do that here because of our regulatory process. And when they shut down these coal plants, there's just no way to really restart those in any kind of because of the way they have to decertify them through the EPA. We don't have that lever. Is that why he's going towards executive action? We understand the mess in Congress in this election year, and we're probably going to have a split Congress for the rest of his term. Is that why he's looking at executive things that he can get his hands on, like pressuring the executives like DPA, like these things, because we just don't have the things like a parliament has We're like, oh, we'll just fire the coal plants up. That's not happening here, is it? <laughs> no, you've, you've seen this for several presidents now uh, when they have their big, bold uh, policy initiatives that they want to get underway, but they don't have the legislative support to do it. What else do they have? They have their regulatory state and they have their executive actions. And, and that's what uh, the president is doing by invoking the Defense Production Act. And, and there's a great example here of um, how his policy goals aren't really even on the same page. So with, with the Defense Production Act, um, the administration would essentially be subsidizing mining for rare earth minerals. Now, those are used for things like uh, battery electric storage, solar panels, wind turbines, cell phones, laptops, all sorts of digital technology. And we don't really produce any of it here in the United States. Um, we have very strict mining regulations, much stricter than other parts of the developed world, um, in, in, including uh, restrictions that the Biden administration itself within the past year and a half has put on this mining activity to make it harder to do. Now, when he wants more of it, I, I don't know why he thinks he can just snap his fingers and subsidize it, um, lift it up with one hand, push it down with the other. No, you, you need to get everything on the same page. Um, essentially, cutting red tape here is going to go a lot further than cutting checks. Yeah, and this is a reason to open the market, not keep subsidizing. Yeah. Now, to be fair here, Trump tried this, too. He was kicking around the idea. You touch on it in your piece. We're linking to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the entire piece. Um, he was kicking around actually using DPA to subsidize and fire back up the coal plants. Now, that probably wasn't going to be a good idea. There's two problems there. One is you've got to deal with the executive overreach of it. Number two is you got to deal with as a good policy. So it's not just Biden, not to pick on him, but he's in the chair here. DPA, just for folks, let's make sure we got the nomenclature right. What was it actually designed to do and what is it turned into? Because we've seen it now with, we saw it during COVID, which was probably an appropriate usage of it. We saw it with the baby formula stuff, which was probably not. And then we see it again raising with this, which definitely isn't. So just break it down for folks. What was DPA designed to be and why is it uh, a bad idea for most of the instances that we're seeing it used now? The Defense Production Act at its heart is a wartime measure meant to boost critical supplies critical to national security. Uh, it was passed back in the Korean War, I believe. And its whole purpose is to mobilize things uh, at a very quick pace that the government might need in times of a war. Now, last I checked, we're not in a war. 
and especially not with the things that, and, and you're right, not just Biden, but also Trump have been trying to use this for. And, and that's a great point you brought up with uh, the Trump administration considering using the DPA to bail out coal plants. It just shows you how fickle DPA usage is. Uh, it lurches from one administration to the next. And it's, it's the opposite of the stability that you get from sound legislation and sound regulatory decision making that you know, the, the industries in question need that to uh, need that to thrive. Yeah, Jacob joining us. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about these issues. We're going to get a little bit more into the regulatory state because I think a lot of folks still don't fully understand how powerful that is. And the power isn't just the power, it's the inertia. It just kind of lurches forward. More with that, our good friend Jacob Puckett rejoining Herdtel from Young Voices. More with him right after this. Welcome back, our friend Jacob Puckett. I was just telling him I'm trying real hard not to call him Chuck Puckett, for those of you from Fayette County. Uh, welcome back, my friend. All right. Again, we like to zoom out a little bit what we're talking about. We're talking about the regulatory state here. Real quick, let's just break this down for a second, and then we'll get into the Supreme Court just recently ruling on this. The real fight within the fight behind the scenes here is with Congress mostly deadlocked for the most part over the last few years. The regulatory state continues to grow and continues to test its powers, and then the judicial has to step in. Describe the power of the regulatory state in these instances, especially something like the EPA, which is a massive, it's a massive federal bureaucracy. It has an important role to play, but it's also a huge jobs program, and it's also a huge part of the government, and therefore it's also a big political cudgel. Just talk about the regulatory state, kind of break it down for folks so they understand, like, the regulatory state is broken because it is filling the place of Congress, which is our elected officials, which is how the system is actually designed to work. Right. When you're talking about big picture, long term, high impact uh, political agendas, that is something that ultimately should be left to the elected representatives of the people, Congress. In the absence of a functioning Congress, you get the administrative state you know, in, in the form of the EPA. Um, the Department of the Interior, et cetera, political appointees at the heart of it, uh, making those big time decisions that the Congress should be making. Um, you, you've seen it many times throughout the years. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, with the EPA considering uh, finding that the Permian Basin is not attaining sufficient air quality standards, um, that's something that they can use as a cudgel to uh, essentially go after an activity that they don't like, oil production. Um, and you can see it through all sorts of other things. And, and part of the problem is some regulations are direct. They get right to the heart of the matter. Others are indirect. They find some tangential way to um, you know, crawl into regulatory areas that they were never intended to be. Um, and, and we saw some of that uh, with the Supreme Court case, West Virginia versus EPA, where the EPA, uh, the Supreme Court ruled, essentially discovered that it had authority in a, in a statute that was written back in the 70s that nobody knew that it had uh, for the past 50 years. And they just 
discovered, so to speak, that they had it, and then started to use that uh, to regulate beyond their authority. Yeah, Jacob Puckett joining us. Okay. Is there any way to get Congress moving on these sorts of issues? We understand the political environment. The midterms are getting ready to happen. We're probably going to have a split Congress with a Democratic president and a Republican Congress, if not a Republican Congress and Senate. Is there any hope of any kind of legislative push against any of this regulatory state in the near future? What we often see with a split Congress, of course, is they'll do some performative bills that they know won't pass, but they'll get it and make the other side fight against it, that sort of thing. But two months ago, we didn't think there's going to be any gun legislation go through. Who knows what happens the rest of the year? Is there anything anywhere in here where there's going to be any kind of compromise on environmental issues, on energy, on gas prices, on any of this sort of stuff? Well, I don't know. The good thing, one encouraging thing to see is um, when, when you have some federal regulatory agencies that do play an important role, uh, for instance, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, you know, fulfills a role that I think would be very difficult for uh, Congress to fulfill. It's good when you see elected officials interacting with those agencies um, preferably in a bipartisan manner, if not the whole Congress, then a group of, of, of members of Congress and talking to them about these issues. Um, is, I do find it quite interesting that you do see a unified, largely, largely unified Congress um, pushing back against the president's, president's proposal for a federal gas tax holiday. Um, even members of his own party are opposed to this. In my opinion, it's just a gimmick. I, I don't know if, if, uh, that would actually have any real effect on passing lower fuel prices on to customers. Um, but that is one instance where you're seeing uh, unified bipartisan support um, pushing back against the bad energy policy idea. Okay, so when we have a complex issue like energy, like environmental concerns, by and in large, I tend to lean towards a you need more of an all of the above than a pet project solution. Mm -hmm. We're seeing some movement on some interesting things right now. There's all of a sudden a renewed interest in nuclear power. We're seeing some states uh, actually change their regulations towards nuclear. We're seeing some actual serious investment in nuclear, which the thing with nuclear is it's, it's cheaper to produce energy, but the overhead to start it up is way, way high, not to mention the regulatory thing. So we're seeing that. We know the debate going on in California about Diablo Canyon. Um, do you see a real movement or is this just kind of a blip? that maybe people are going back and re-examining things like nuclear in a climate sense of like, well, hey, we're waiting on all this new technology. We have this old technology that we can spin in new ways. It feels like there's some movement there. Is that noise or is there actually stuff on the ground to be uh, in, uh, enthusiastic about here? I really do think this is a very encouraging trend that we're seeing. Um, teaching an old dog new tricks. You've got these huge nuclear power plants that have been around for decades. And uh, lots of investors and developers and innovators are finding ways to essentially create smaller nuclear plants that are more operationally flexible. They're even safer. And nuclear is already an incredibly safe form of uh, energy production. And that they're, and, and they're more mobile and can be placed in, um, placed in areas around the country that you, know, you wouldn't necessarily build a huge nuclear plant there, a new nuclear power plant there, but you would find room for a smaller nuclear plant. Uh, you've seen regulatory action on this. Even President Biden himself uh, is supportive of nuclear energy innovation. And you've seen 
you've seen the consequences around the world of neglecting nuclear power, uh, like in France and in Germany, shutting down their nuclear plants consistently over the past decade has left them in a very vulnerable position, which is why, as you mentioned earlier, they're increasingly looking to turn back to coal. Um, so if we keep our eye on the ball with nuclear power, um, you know, we shouldn't end up in a place like Germany is in right now. And uh, it's, it's a clean form of energy production. It's safe. And it's something that we need more of. Jacob Puckett joining us. Um, just to loop back to your piece here in the closing minutes we have with you, you have a great line that you end this piece with. I want to quote it here. It says the right process gets the right results and legislative and regulatory actions are key to creating a viable long-term playing field. We've already detailed it. Congress is mostly dysfunctional. The the regulatory state by any measure is pretty much out of control. Um, That's why we have bad policy. We have bad, um, excuse me, that's why we have bad policy. We've had bad process. So we've talked about the policy side of this. Politics is practical. How do we fix the process? Is it electing better officials? Is it holding them more accountable? Is it uh, political pressure through things like action committees and fundraisers? What's the practical side of this to get the lawmakers in line so that they're invested in having a better process and know the, vo- the voters are as well? I think too often people, um, especially politicians, get caught up in the politics of now. They want to do something right now. And, and, and that's understandable. Good for them. But these, these legislative and regulatory processes are arduous, they are meticulous, and they take a long time for a reason, so that they, they can withstand the test of time. Um, they can, th- these decisions can have longevity and create the stability that the industries that they're affecting need in order to have uh, a, a viable playing field. Um, that takes time. It takes a lot of effort, but the durable um, energy policies that underlie lots of what's going on today. I'm, t- I'm thinking of the Clean Air Act, first passed back in the 70s, uh, the Energy Policy Act passed back in the 90s that gets amended every few years or so. Those are long-term legislative achievements um, that underwent a lot of discussion, but that's also the reason that they're still around and they're still relevant today. But you know, using the Defense Production Act as a substitute for this, it makes no sense. The DPA is not a get out of jail free card and the Biden administration should stop treating it like one. Well, it makes sense politically because they're just trying, like you said, to get um, our economic friends. We talk about all the time is like, you know, politicians are like the head coach and the economics are like, you know, the general manager. They're both trying to win, but they're trying to do it in different levels. The presidents are always going to need to win right now, the next election, whatever. And it's going to butt against long-term policy. It's the internal problem in the system. Jacob Puckett joining us. One last question for you on this thing. Um, when it comes to energy projects, everybody's obsessing over the gas prices, of course, but that's a lagging indicator. There's a lot that goes into what you see at the pump. What's the next energy crisis? Because people are talking about it. Is it the water stuff out West and the electricity out West and what's going on in there? It, let's assume fuel prices go down at least a little bit eventually, maybe gas is, uh, is it energy? Is it something we saw in Texas where the grid failed because the grid isn't being properly taken care of in a regulatory manner? Uh, winter's coming. So we're going to have, you know, fuel oil in the Northeast, things like this. What's the next big energy crisis folks should be paying attention to before it actually hits? Andrew, do you remember a couple of years ago when California had a couple of days of rolling blackouts 
in the yep. heat wave. Yep. So the the national North American Energy Regulatory Commission has been putting out warnings for a couple of weeks now that you know a lot more than just California's grid is at risk for the same type of thing this summer. Uh, California's grid again with drought, um, and then several Midwestern energy grids, essentially covering from the Mississippi all the way to the Pacific Coast. They're saying that. Uh, these grids are at a higher risk of blackout under peak summer conditions. So when there's a heat wave, uh, when a lot of people are trying to use air conditioning, the blackouts might not just be in California this year. And that's because we've been shutting down lots lots of baseload, reliable power capacity uh, and replacing it with things that are not as reliable. Um, Are we going too fast with this? Maybe, we'll find out. Um, maybe we'll find out this summer, but that's, that's what I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah. Jacob Puckett, great stuff. Great young voices contributor. He's out of the show me state in Missouri. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you until you come back to her tell again, we enjoy having you, your social media, what you're writing about. We're going to link to the piece we've been discussing here in the show notes, make sure you read it and share it in its entirety. Let folks know where they can follow you until we see you again, my friend. Sure. All of my articles, uh, I tweet from my Twitter handle at Jacob R. Puckett. That's Jacob with a K. And uh, Andrew, thanks so much for having me. And I hope to be back again in the future. We will. And it's been funny um, with the Supreme Court ruling that you talked about. Every single picture is of the John Amos power plant, but they always grab the one of the Polka High School football field, which is right underneath it. So all those. So and I know that field. Well, we you know, it's a horrible place to have to play football but the mighty fighting docks of polka high school yes the mascot is the dots of polka <laughs> but anyway it's just been funny because every single one of those pictures that's the john amos power plant in west virginia uh famous power plant so we will get you on about west virginia one of these times too because there's a lot of interesting stuff out of epa west virginia versus epa ruling it just came out yesterday as we recorded this so we haven't had time to really go through it uh so we'll have you back in a week or two we'll talk through that because that's going to affect a lot of this regulatory stuff isn't it it is. Yeah. The court uh, is trying to rein in the EPA and that could have wider effects as well. It's an interesting time to be alive if you're covering energy and transportation, my friend. I love transportation. We're going to keep talking about it. Jacob Puckett, great stuff as always, buddy. Appreciate your time. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, when we have news and concerns and questions about big tech, this is who we go to. If you've got concerns about the interwebs, this is who we go to. If you have all kinds of questions about the gobbledygook doublespeak about internet regulation that our Congress is foisting upon us, this is who we go to. James Ranowski, so great to have you back on the program, buddy. James, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Is there anything interesting going on in the big tech social media realm that we should maybe talk about? (laughs) I mean, there's always something going on, right? But I think the dominating news of the past few days now has been uh, with Elon Musk calling off the the Twitter acquisition deal officially. Uh, That was something that we both have been monitoring and talking about quite extensively uh, since it was announced back in April. And it took measuring into... Uh, its next phase with Elon Musk terminating that 
uh, acquisition agreement, and now they are going to get into a very unfriendly, uh, nasty court battle. <laughs> so we'll have to see what happens uh, in this next phase of Elon v. Twitter, but it's it's definitely been a wild ride, to say the least. Now, we actually talked about this when it first happened. I was being facetious there because I, I specifically brought you on because last time we talked, well, this is what we talked about. And we talked about, like, is this a done deal? Is it not a done deal? We talked about some of the twists and turns that have gone on. Now it is a done deal. Um, my my read on this, let's just work backwards. Let's start with where we're at, and then we'll, we'll review a little bit. My, my read on this and from talking to some of our lawyer friends is like, look, uh, this, this is just the buyout with some fancy lawyering on top of it. They're going to go to court. They're going to print and pose sometime before it goes to discovery, though. They're going to sit down. They're going to come up with a number. It's going to be a lot less than $1 billion. And in a couple of weeks when the heat's off, this will all get settled. That kind of feels like where this is going, right? Yeah, I think that that would be the logical path that things should take. But with Elon, there's always that added factor of you just don't know what he's what exactly he's thinking about there. But you're not wrong. Like what's going to happen next is that this is going to get handled by what is known as the Chancery Court system in Delaware. That is not your typical court system. It is one that is specialized in dealing with matters uh, that have to deal with business uh, related issues. Um, So the good news there is that we'll actually have a pretty good idea. So what's going to happen from the Chancery Court in a matter of months, not like a normal court proceeding, which could take well over a year uh, and then some. So this should be a little bit more speedy than uh, what we're normally used to with other kinds of court trials here. But yeah, one would think that basically because the, the incentive is not to go forward with court proceedings as much as humanly possible. It gets very expensive for everybody. Uh, So one would like to think that they're going to sit down and hammer out a deal uh, that probably readjusts the value of what Twitter is going to get bought at. Uh, But again, it remains to be seen. We have to see how Twitter's board feels about it uh, in terms of how their willingness is to actually budge off the number that Elon originally went with. And we have to see what Elon's willing to do. Is he truly just trying to walk away and salvage any kind of money that he, you know, doesn't have to otherwise pay or is he is he trying to do it for the purpose of lowering the price? Um, you know, there are different implications that are going to happen here. Uh, I know that when we've talked about this, the fee for breaking off and calling off the merger was a billion dollars. But the reality is, is that it's far larger than that because Twitter is going to sue. There's losses. There's shareholder lawsuits. This is not just a simple billion dollar thing for Elon Musk. It's a lot bigger than that. So all indications would point towards this coming to some kind of resolution. Yeah, and this is exactly why we have you on because let's let's make sure we got everybody on the same page here. A lot of po- folks probably just heard Chancery Court for the first time. Uh, business, especially big business, and this is bigger than big business. When you start talking multi-billion dollar mergers, acquisitions, hostile takeovers, this is a whole different level of business. It's a whole different level of regulation. Just explain to folks because a lot of folks, they're not going to be familiar with that, and that's why we have you on. You, you explain this stuff. Just break down what the Chancellor Court does because that's very, very different than like civil litigation or even like we, we've seen a lot of stuff like even with Elon Musk where the SEC takes him to court uh, over sorting things with stock manipulation, things like that. This is a yeah. whole different beast. No, you're absolutely right. It's a completely different beast than your traditional court because the Chancery Court in Delaware, which is a fun fact for your listeners, uh, Delaware is the most incorporated state in the entire country. Uh, Every single business that usually wants to get incorporated does so in the state of Delaware, in part because of this unique uh, legal system that they have working there. But basically what ends up happening here is that 
basically Delaware has its own separate court system that deals with business matters. And because that is how they are structured, they are specialized in dealing with it. And that means that they can get it done faster. We can get to resolutions faster. And it's actually something that businesses like on either side of the aisle, because it means that their litigation costs are lower to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, there's, there's, there's a higher degree of certainty because these uh, judges and lawyers are all going to be very intimately familiar with business law and the administration and adjudication of that law in the court. Um, so there's a lot of clarity that would be there in the state of Delaware as opposed to other uh, judicial, uh, other judicial sectors where it might not necessarily have that kind of technical expertise. So Delaware is definitely in a unique position, and that's the purpose of this court. Yeah, uh, James Janowski joining us. Now, Here's that's the legal side and the technical side and the business side. But what happened online was this became a, another culture war thing. Uh, I think it was bizarrely so. I think this was really slamming a round peg into a square hole. However, how do we evaluate that now? Because now this, you know, Elon's never going to be quiet online. So he's always going to be out there. However, this chancellor court thing, this is a pretty much set process. Nobody's going to, they're not going to get intimidated by anybody. They don't care what Twitter says about anything. They're just going to plow ahead and do their business. Does this kind of tap down? Because I notice usually I say anything about Elon Musk, my inbox fills up real, real fast. Boy, them folks were quiet this weekend. They they didn't really want to talk to me. I don't know if that's because I got video of me being right and them wrong, but I'm just saying we, they got kind of quiet. Do you think the culture aspect of this maybe tones down a little bit, at least until Elon Musk says something else? Because it sure seemed like the whole Twitter thing got hijacked for the moment instead of what it was actually going on, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that you bring up an interesting point, right? Because I think when Elon, you know, originally announced that he wanted to buy Twitter, a lot of people were very charged in their emotions, if you will, uh, in terms of how they felt about this this announcement one way or the other. Um, If you ask conservatives, they thought that it would be a huge boon for free speech. And if you ask liberals, you think that, you know, Twitter would get turned into parlor or 4chan or worse. And the reality is, is that we'll never know as of right now, because Elon is not going through with purchasing Twitter as of yet until we have a decision on the legal side of this. And I think that, you know, culturally, I think people are starting to come to the reality that it was never as black and white as they thought it was going to be. I think that, you know, it became increasingly apparent that, you know, Elon during the period of when they announced the deal to this latest development was more or less armchair CEOing, no more or less than any other internet tiger on the keyboard, right? I think that anybody can pontificate about all the problems that you have on any of these platforms, but it's another thing to be the guy who has to sit in the actual CEO chair and, and figure out how you're going to address the very real problems that these platforms are facing. Yeah, I put it on on uh, my Twitter too. I was like, look, even if Elon buys them, it's not Elon Musk that's going to set these policies. It's the it takes an army of engineers to make a social media site run. There's there's technical limitations on this. It's not just I know everybody wants to go to you know it's bias and there's shadow ban. There may be some of that. A lot of this stuff is just baked in technical stuff that a lot of us just don't understand. Even if, like they were talking about, they'll release the algorithm. We can release it. Nobody's going to be able to read it. <laughs> like I, I got really tickled at that. I was like, you, you can't read the algorithm. You have no idea what that stuff means. A lot of this stuff is technical and baked in. And then we want to put what we think is going on culturally on top of it. And it kind of gives us with an incomplete picture. And I think a lot of us, I'm guilty of it too sometimes. So I'll put myself, we end up looking silly when we probably should have took a step back and just let it breathe. 
Yeah, I think I think when we're especially when we're looking at like algorithms and anything of that nature, we always have to I always try to express a certain degree of skepticism because I, I think that transparency is a great tool. It's an important tool that can certainly help in the process. But transparency for the sake of transparency is is also something that can be detrimental to a service too, because there are plenty of nefarious actors that want to go and, you know, play with the system and figure out what works and what doesn't work. So that way they can go and do what they want to do and use the platform for otherwise not ideal purposes, right? So I think that, you know, it sounds nice in theory to talk about algorithm transparency and some of these other proposals out there. But again, when the rubber hits the road, we have to actually have you know, solutions and policies that are grounded in reality that can be tested and and, adju- and adjusted on the background. And I go, I think on average, when we're talking about this, no matter how you feel about the platforms, there's this default assumption that there's the shadow banning, any of that stuff that you've highlighted. Sometimes it's just a simple mistake. Maybe the algorithm over indexes for something. I mean, this is not perfect. Uh, algorithms are only as good as the data that's getting fed into them. And they're managed by humans who are definitely imperfect or not angels last I checked. So I think that it presents a whole different can of worms that people aren't necessarily always thinking about. So we always have to be careful about thinking about trying to put like hard law restrictions on how we're going to operate any of these, uh, you know, very malleable internet services, because uh, if you go down that route, people will certainly, I think, end up being in a worse off situation. Yeah, James Janowski, he's so good on this stuff. We come back. There's other stuff going on in the tech news. We're going to ask him about it. He's writing about it, doing a lot of media lately. He's a busy guy. We're thrilled to have him back on Herdtail. More with James Janowski, our tech friend, right after this. back to herd tell he is our tech expert big tech expert regulation expert love having him on good information james ranowski uh james there's other stuff going on the elon musk stuff one, one of the things i highlighted too is because it's kind of been a distraction from some really important stuff going on uh let's start with crypto take it from this angle it's had a real rough time in the headlines it's having a rough time in the markets for people that aren't into crypto, because let's admit it, there's a little bit of a cultish, hey, I'm in it and you're not and I'm cool. And there's a, there's a lot of that involved in it. The average person, though, that just kind of pays attention to tech and business and politics, though, what part of that story should they pay attention to? Because the headlines look really bad. I'm sure that it'll bounce back at some point. The average person that consumes politics, though, what should they be paying attention to and what's noise that they should turn down when it comes to crypto right now? Yeah, I think that crypto, for one reason or another, is the hot topic. Uh, when you're not too busy thinking about big tech, a lot of countries and individuals are thinking about crypto and thinking about uh, how it's being utilized in different fashions, uh, particularly at the SEC. We've seen Chairman Gensler try to uh, ramp up his enforcement. And I'd say, like, if you're a consumer, the big thing that you should care about is how is this industry going to look moving forward? And that is shaped by how the government decides to treat it. And so far underneath the Biden administration, it's not been a very friendly relationship. Uh, Like I said, Chairman Gensler over the SEC is being extremely big on enforcement against crypto. Um, 
trying to treat every single cryptocurrency like a security as opposed to a commodity or a currency. In my opinion, when you're looking at cryptocurrencies, there's a variable use factor there because it depends on the user. Some people, they do look at it as a security. They see the upward you know, trajectory of Bitcoin and they're like, yeah, I want to hold on to it. Other people, especially the, the cultish originals that, that you're referencing, that, that's, that was not why they got into it. Uh, so I think that you need a lot of nuance and a lot of understanding. And this administration is anything but, uh, you know, con- cognizant about what exactly crypto is in terms of how to treat it or or how to go and handle it. And we've seen that throughout various pieces of legislation. So if you're a consumer, I care about wanting to make sure that we actually let this thing foster and grow in a good environment while having reasonable uh, expectations of protection for consumers. That's that's the whole point of regulation, but not crushing the industry. Right. Uh, This is actually really important to a lot of Americans. A lot of millennials actually own crypto. A lot of Gen Z own crypto. A lot of minorities own crypto. So there's a lot of people who stand to gain if we go and have a light touch approach similar to what we saw when we had a light touch approach to the Internet that resulted in countless amounts of growth to the United States and really put us to be a leader. Right. So that's what we want to see moving forward. If you're a consumer, that's what I would want to see. Now, I've been super critical of crypto. I don't I don't partake because I don't understand. I'm just honest. I've got friends that really know this stuff who have tried to explain it to me, and I just I can't get my head around it. So I'll just put my I'm gonna defend crypto here for just a second though. Tell me if this if this works. I think what happened, if you have an emergency emergent technology, you and me, we're we're free market guys, we're capitalistic guys, we want freedom for people. So we understand for new technology, a natural development is the usually the most healthy way for something to come out. This kind of reminds me, I think, of the dot-com stuff, where when the internet first came out, it got really top-heavy. You had the bubble. The bubble collapsed. But then after that, it developed into what it became. And then you had social media. And then you had the smartphones and the iPhones. People forget iPhones aren't that old. They're only We've only had them 15 years. After that initial top-heavy collapse is when the internet really became what the internet was going to be. I could see that being kind of the pattern with crypto, where it's like, okay, a lot of the untoward stuff's kind of working itself out of the system. We're going to have this collapse, and then it's going to kind of get back to whatever it's going to be in the future. Is that a fair comparison? Do you think maybe that folks, are, maybe we're just a couple of years ahead of the game here, and this is still yet to play out where it's going to be? I just want to be fair to crypto because I do bash it, but I could <laughs> see it taking that path, and that would actually be a healthier thing down the road. Yeah, I think I think it's not unfair to suggest it, right? Because typically when we're thinking about crypto and blockchain technologies. This is all part of the next generation of the the interwebs, right? Web 3.0 includes blockchain and crypto and digital assets more broadly speaking, because this is all part of the underpinnings of how this can work. um, Because these these digital assets can serve as property rights on the internet, uh, which I think are pretty important more broadly speaking. That being said, you know, we're in the early iterations of a lot of it, which means that a lot of it's not going to be perfect. Uh, we saw that happen with some stable coins, the, the hot thing that Congress might have an interest in trying to regulate uh, with this, you know, combination of Terra Luna, where because the coin was backed in a particular fashion and that backing completely bottomed out, it completely undermined the stable coin itself. So I think that, you know, it's it's a matter of trying to figure out where the vulnerabilities are, where are the kinks, and building up that user trust. So that way, when you do get, you know, Web 2.0 and that build out that we saw that led to the rise of social media and all that for the Web 3 equivalents, 
you know, we can actually have that happen a little bit more smoothly, but you're always going to have these bumps in the road. They think these things are to be expected. The market is not a kind and forgiving place. People lost their shirts. I mean, I own Ethereum. I, I own Dogecoin just for LOL purposes, and I've lost my shirt on it. But I also hold on to it for the long haul. I'm not in desperate need of that money right now either. So I always, at least when I'm talking to people about it, always urge them to take a long you know, view on this in general and try to hold on to everything because it is going to bounce back. It'll come back. It's more matters to what, what exactly does the structure of, of Web 3.0 and all these things that support it look like in that next iteration. Uh, and that'll come as, as technology develops and use cases develop. Now, all that's still very you know young right now. Think about some of the use cases right now that we have, like let's say with NFTs, right? One of the early use cases right now is actually with music and artists. That's a little niche. Uh, and it's another way of trying to break down current systems right now where you could go and do through Spotify or something else as opposed to a traditional record label. But that's going to take a long time and a lot of patience. So like it is going to happen, but it's it's a little bit more gradual than I think people realize. It's more of the unseen uh, market enhancements than, you know, these bold, dynamic, massive scales of innovation that we might be used to over years past. Yeah, because like people didn't see the iPhone coming, but like there was tech people that were like, oh, yeah, this is coming. But the public, it was like, oh, my God, this came out of nowhere. Like, no, it didn't. I think that's kind of the stage we're at right now. Uh, James, Janowski, I want to ask you this before we got to let you go, though. You were on Fox 5, our friends over in D.C. on the TV. Um, you d- you had a great comment, and I want to expound on a little bit about how tycoons are power players in politics. We're going to link to it. It's up on his Young Voices page. You can watch the segment in its entirety. We already talked about Elon Musk. Um, culture and politics and business all combined right there. We just saw it for months on end, right? Culture and politics combining. You got the Peter Thiels of the world out there fielding candidates like J.D. Vance, $10 million bankroll up front for that. Silicon Valley for the Democratic Party is now the most important fundraising place they have as far as geography goes. This is just the new reality that when you have a lot of people with a lot of money, they're going to find places to put that money. And a lot of them want to go to politics and have they want to be players. Um, just talk about that for a minute, because this is a big shift because it used to be the power players in politics was either generational wealth or the captains of industry type. Well, the new captains of industry type are in tech and they're in speculation and they're in these things, but that also changes what they want policy wise and what they expect from government, doesn't it? Yeah. So I I think that you raise an excellent point there. Uh, political fundraising and the ability to get things that you particularly might want as an industry or as an individual uh, past is certainly not unsurprising to your ability to have a lot of wealth. Uh, With Web 2.0 and the rise of the internet age, we saw a lot of companies amass a lot of wealth and use that towards donating to get uh, politicians that were more amenable to their positions on a wide variety of issues. And we're starting to see the same thing happen um, here too, even with Web 3.0 and some of these other ones, uh, it's not any surprise that Andreessen Horowitz and A16Z has played a pretty big role in trying to go and shape how Web 3.0 policy might look on the federal level over the coming years. And they actually have a lot of money. You're talking about billions of dollars that he has invested across many funds to go and, and develop the Web 3.0 space. So there's no surprise that we're seeing a shifting of the tides here. And the reality is, is that as our economy shifts away from being more offline to more online, that means that the power brokers that 
play in politics are going to shift accordingly for better or worse. There, there are some, we'll say, interesting personalities online that might throw some interesting wrenches into what this looks like. And I'll give a good example where uh, you have Sam Berkman Freed going and forming his own pack to try to have, uh, you know, more the most crypto friendly politicians get elected to Congress. He did a horrible job his first time around with uh, picking and supporting candidates. But as this becomes more, you know, institutionalized, I imagine that we'll continue to see this get built out and more professional in terms of being able to vet and educate and all that, because that's the big problem that we have right now. And as these industries grow, then that need to educate is going to be that much more important. I think too, and and you, we've talked about this in other formats before. The other thing about these tech guys and the new money that's coming in, like Peter Thiel, I've got all kinds of issues with him personally and politically, but he's a good example of it. This new rise in the power players, they're not traditionally heterodox. Um, they are different. They're not really falling into the traditional, you know, liberal, conservative, progressive, right? They don't fit those boxes quite as neatly. I think we learned that with the Elon Musk things. We're like, well, he says this, this sounds more conservative and this sounds really progressive. And then this sounds really libertarian. I think that's something that's going to have to change is people's going to have to change their filters a little bit when it comes to these folks. They've got niche issues. They have broad global perspectives in a lot of reasons. This is going to be a very different animal than their traditional left-right dynamic, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But I think that's more of a symptom of the reality of politics as it currently stands. There's a lot of, I think it's impossible to miss the amount of frustration there is uh, with Washington. I mean, uh, our organization is doing an entire campaign about Washington waste and how people are paying more to get less because this administration that's currently in power is focused on doing all kinds of radical things that actually aren't what people want. Like they're, they, they are heterodox on average. And when you have someone like Elon Musk or, or uh, Peter Thiel, who are heterodox thinkers and don't necessarily line up cleanly R or D, it puts you in a weird position because now it means that you actually have to think a little bit more than you might have otherwise had to, which could be a good thing, right? Like I, I would like to think that I would want to encourage not just politicians, but voters to become more heterodox in their thinking in general. I think that there's actually a lot of benefit to that in terms of just wanting to develop your, your thoughts and your beliefs and your core values. Um, it's not a pain. It's not a bad thing in my view, but I think like anything else, it's there's certainly is a cautionary tale to be had there because when you're putting money behind those thoughts, that certainly I think influences how that might manifest in the form of legislation or political activity, right? So that's always something that you have to keep in the back of your mind. These heterodox thinkers, it's one thing to have them when you're outside the game, but once you're in the game, I think that that fundamentally shifts how those ideas that you might have had while outside the box get applied inside the box. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're going to see it actually test-bedded here because it looks like some of these candidates might get through. James Arnowski, he does outstanding work. We love having him on. He's a regular here on Hertel, but you're a busy guy. You got a lot of irons in the fire, buddy. So until we get you back again, which is going to be at least a couple of weeks because you're getting ready to hit the road, let folks know where you're working, what you're working on, where they follow you on social media until they see you again next time we have you on Hertel. Yeah, it's, it's a very busy slate coming up. I'll be out in uh, in Las Vegas this upcoming week for Freedom Fest to go and do a panel on, you guessed it, big tech. Uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun getting to go and do that kind of stuff. But uh, if you ever want to catch up on my musings, I always encourage people to follow me on Twitter at jamescz19. 
I also have a personal website at jamestronowski.com, where you can always find me through the Young Voices website too, where my work is posted there as well. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Really appreciate it. It's always a fun conversation. Yeah. And we're going to get to the one we've been wanting to do, but breaking news always gets annoyed. We're going to have this gaming conversation because there's some really important there. That's a big, you talk big tech. Gaming's a huge part of big tech. People don't realize how big gaming oh, and the gaming it. culture, but there's some oh, yeah. really important stuff going on right now. And we're, we're going to get you on. We're going to talk kind of big picture future stuff. Cause guess what? All them, that demographic, everybody wants as voters. They're all gaming right now. You might want to pay attention to what's going on because they're starting to get screwed over in the gaming world, which has always been their safe space. That's going to have political ramifications. We're going to have you on talk about that soon, my friend. Uh, James Arnowski, you're the best. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tells Twice on Sunday. We hope you join us again on Monday, or if you're listening to this some other time, continue to look through all the episodes of Herd Tell, all the good talks that we have, all the Twice on Sunday programs. We sure do appreciate it. Do us a favor, though. Make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're watching or listening this on. It's really important to us. Let's other folks know our little program is worth listening to. It also gives us good feedback. We always answer those comments. If you want to talk to us directly, herdtellshow at gmail.com, herdtellshow on the Twitter. Always thrilled to hear from you. Might even put it in the show. We've had commenters come on the show and fight their corner before, so you never know. Keep your bearing. Be nice, but we love to hear from you. So until we talk to you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again on Herdtell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.